and welcome to Motorpod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is tantalisingly episode 699. We're recording this on July 6th of 2022. We're getting ominously close to 700, Jim. How are you doing? I'm good. It's raining here. I've had rain for weeks and now it's raining for days. So luckily uh, we did not have rain spoiling the 4th of July festivities over here in the States or the colonies, as you may say. (laughs) I would never say such a thing, but uh, (laughs) I'm very happy to report in the UK or in the south of the UK, we're just about to head into about a week's worth of heat waves. So it's Mm. going to be slightly unusual weather for here, which I'm quite pleased about. So we've got that to look forward to. Um, we don't have any racing to talk about, Jim, which is a little bit no, unusual, but we're sort strange. of in the, in the sort of the mid-summer breaks, uh, some of which are forced upon MotoGP, for example, with the Kimi Ring having been cancelled. So what we decided we were going to do this time around was to dive into some of the listener feedback, which we've been accumulating over, I guess, the last five or six weeks, Jim, I think. Yeah, I think it goes back to like the end of May, somewhere around Memorial yes. Day. So yeah. there's quite a bit here, but it's all good stuff. And there just really wasn't time to delve into all of this to get a really good read on it, along with having to get a show out and get ready for the next weekend's event. So we said, well, let's just do it here in this five-week break. So we're going to yeah. take our time, go through it. I warn you people, there's a rant coming. <laughs> there's probably more than one. I wouldn't uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Probably so. Probably so. Yeah. So what we tend to do as people that write into the show will know is that we will quite often, either Jim or myself or both of us, and even some of the other ex-show hosts will chip in with a reply by email, which obviously we don't normally discuss that quite so much but I think what we'll do today is we'll just read through the five or six I think it probably is responses that we had on a a wide-ish range of topics and we'll just see where this leads us and hopefully it will lead to other stuff coming in from the listeners. I just wanted to also mention that following the talk on the listener feedback we'll have a zoom zoom and we'll go into an interview which I conducted today with Greg Haynes where we're just talking about the first four rounds of the World Superbike Championship. It's not quite halfway through the season it's a 10 round season so we're not quite half term report but again there's a bit of a gap in proceedings the uh, the british round at donington park is taking place not this weekend but the following weekend and then the calendar kind of gets quite hectic again between that and bsb so it's good to catch up with greg as ever he gave me an awful lot of time and was uh, very fulsome in his answers that will probably run to about an hour and a half that interview once it's edited down a little bit so this is going to be a longish show so with that being said jim should we dive straight into it i know no normally we do the whole subscriber thing and where to send some money into us but perhaps we'll just pick that up at the end but because uh, i'm quite keen to get into this stuff yeah let's just go we'll yeah. start we'll start with the first one. this this is back in from it came in in may 29th it came in from paul lang and he says with rookies coming up quote out of nowhere and making this season so special it'd be nice to hear how racers come up to moto gp and top series do they start bicycle racing karting how does it vary by country is it a rich kid sport any thoughts and insights would be cool to hear with these young bucks racing their hearts out so I'm going to do it from the American side and I got it kind of a two-way thing. It's kind of like, this is how it was when I was trying to go and be a professional motorcycle racer before I realized I was better as an engineer <laughs> than I ever was as a rider. And then kind of like where it is, is as we kind of see it today. So back in the late part of the eighties, when I was racing bikes, you, you started out racing amateur and you started racing like amateur dirt tracks. So you'd run short tracks, half miles, um, TTs, if there was one around and you grew up in bigger bikes, bigger classes, lots of stuff. People started out like on a 65 CEC bike and then you had an 80, you'd go to a 125, a 250, then to like a 500. Now the AMA said that when you became 16 years old, you could apply for your pro license. 
So anybody who was dirt tracking at the time wanted to be a grand national champion or wanted to get onto uh, road racing if they were smart enough at that time. But for, for this say, for this argument right here, we'll just kind of follow along what I was doing. Mm-hmm. You went, you applied for your, your AMA Pro license and they would give you what, what was termed at the time a novice license. So you ran around with a white number plate with red letters on it and that meant you were a novice. So you, you didn't know that much. And so you could start going to the regionals that were pro races and you were collecting points and you collected enough points you could become what was then considered to be a junior rider so you got a yellow number plate with black numbers on it that signified you as a junior rider and the junior riders at the time always rode with the professional dirt trackers there was a the grand national championship ran its races and there was a support class if you will that was all the juniors riding 600 cc singles at the same tracks now that would let you ride mile. You could ride once you're a pro. You could ride miles, half miles, TTs, short tracks, whatever it is that you wanted to do. Your goal was to try to try to be looked at and do well enough in those AMA nationals to be looked at by other teams or try to get a ride with someone. And you also then tried to move over to the road racing scene because at the time Americans were dominating dirt world championships in the 80s. Spencer, Roberts, Lawson, <clears throat> you had. Rainey then into the 90s, Schwantz, Kaczynski had a title in there somewhere, on, I think on the 250s, he had a yeah. World Superbike title, but it was that it was that dirt track style, back ends out, sliding, all that kind of thing was going on. So you would try to do dirt track and then you would try to start road racing. So you could go to what was called WIRA, which was the Western Eastern Road Racers Association. So it was a club level race. I was a WIRA racer. There was also what they called CCS, which was a championship cup series. Both these two organizations still exist at this time. WIRA is the more predominant one. So you could go there at 16 and you could ride, you could do, you could literally ride a, a 125 Grand Prix bike because you get them from Moto Liberty here in the States. There was 600 super sport classes, 600 super bike, and you tried road racing. So if you could do well at Wira, you were invited to what was called the Grand National Championships, which happened at Road Atlanta at the end of the year in September. So if you could collect enough points by going to the Wira regional races, so like Indianapolis Cycle Jam was a, had a regional race. There was a regional race that happened, I think, at, at uh, like uh, Gateway Park in St. Louis when I was racing. There was another one that was near Cleveland or not. Um, sorry, not Cleveland. Uh, Nelson Ledges, the famous Nelson Ledges track, which I think is in the northeastern part of Ohio, south of Cleveland. You could go to these races and if you got enough points, you could go. So when you go to the national there, then you could make a name for yourself. Like if you won a national race, a lot of people at that time with the with how many sponsors and big bikes and all the factory teams that were in American pro AMA pro road racing. If you showed up and did really well, the teams took a looking at that. And so, Hey, you get sort of bumped onto like maybe Carrie Andrews hypercycle team, which is where Nikki Hayden started. Um, there was a, I think there's a Bruce transportation team. Arian had its sort of satellite Honda team and they may offer you something, et cetera. So you would then get onto a pro ride at that point try to make your name on that sub that sort of satellite team or non-factory team and show pretty well in the super sport because a lot of them would just put you into like the super sport class and if you could show well enough there the factories may pick you up and you could go on now this is kind of the path that nikki hayden took right he did dirt track he had amateur national championships he went to into weir i mean i saw nikki run around at weir tracks and weir events he won a couple of weir nationals he got on the carrie andrews hypercycle team he Impressed by winning a super sport race against Miguel de at Willow Springs at 17, I think. <laughs> Wound up with a factory Honda contract, eventually leading to a to a win in 2002 in uh, Daytona 
on the RC 51. And then from there he went on to race in Europe. And that was the path you, you did all this amateur racing and you kind of did that on mom and dad's dime. You might have a sponsor here and there, maybe a local bike shop would throw some money at you. If you quit, if you will, and you, you did it. That's how you did it. That's where you went. Now, it, today it's a little bit different it's still you're starting out as an amateur you could do motocross here in the states and you could be successful at that and some people transition colin edwards is probably the most notable transition that happened is colin edwards came out of the dirt motocross scene somehow i can't remember how he exactly got into being a, on a 250 bike but he sort of burst onto the scene riding a 250 grand prix bike at the ama nationals and voila he winds up going up the ladder and again goes to europe so that's sort of how all that works today now it's the same thing you want to be an amateur try to collect an amateur championship if you can then you if you can you want to be on a bike at uh we're at 16 uh doing all the road racing that you can trying to get to the weir nationals get looked at there maybe one of the moto america teams will kind of help you get on one of their bikes or you can be a pro and go enter into there as long as you've got enough qualifications like hey look i've done all these amateur nationals uh, i've got this many years of riding experience or whatever it, they'll give you a license to be a moto america racer you could have your own team with mom and dad and go there and you can be looked at and what you're trying to do now is now since there's the aprilia north america talent cup you're trying to put together a resume of successful seasons of racing to apply for the i think there's 12 or 15 positions available now i think for one of these identically prepared rs250 aprilia bikes they were at coda yeah. you that puts you into that moto america paddock kind of like a red bull it's kind of the red bull rookies equivalent of europe here in the states and once you have that you can then or you know you're there among all the moto america teams and then you're looking for that offer you're also since you're being showcased in front of the world talent there's going to be people who may help you get to the cev and whatnot i mean joe roberts is a prime example he was a kid that grew up in southern california he did some some i think motocross not 100 sure on that i know he spent a lot of time at kenny roberts ranch in, in california and then he left and went back to europe to pursue a racing career in europe and then he's been picked up and moved up through the series there cambobia kind of the same thing he kind of left for europe he went as a red bookies role he makes no qualms about the fact that he was martin marquez's teammate in a red bull rookies cup mm. and raced with him in that that series so that's kind of how people kind of get there at least from the united states this is how you, how you get there is it a rich kid sport Look yeah. it is now it is definitely is now um i remember you know i mean my mom and dad put everything into what we were doing and it was really a hobby and they put everything into it and you know that's fine um there was the rich kids there's always the rich kid who's got the new leathers the new bike the new everything right and there's people who are just as fast who've got three-year-old bike and especially in dirt track because it depends on what your setup is and your throttle control and a whole lot of other variables that are yeah. that are in there so that's kind of there uh well you had said something rich that triggered something in my mind and i don't remember what it was well you we were saying it's more of a rich kid sport oh that's it now yeah, rich kid now yeah. yeah 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 so is it rich kids i don't know but i mean yeah it's a lot more money now than, than it ever was there just aren't the seats that are that used to be there that you could possibly get to uh, i know when we were racing weekend club racing it was 364 dollars for a set of dunlops every weekend so, you know, and if you didn't have a set, well, well you know, the other guy did. <laughs> so I think uh, car racing, I really think that's a rich guy sport, right? I think the yeah. joke is there, 
how, how do you how do you become a millionaire racing cars well you start with two million <laughs> yes exactly yeah. right something to that effect so you start with a large fortune and make a small one yeah <laughs> yeah yeah have a big fortune make a small fortune you know it's like i i've always said i make no bones about this there's we have a lottery here in america it's all that some of the states are in it's called the powerball whatever you pick numbers and sometimes it's like 400 500 million 600 million dollars it's like i throw a couple quid on a ticket because if I ever win that, I'm quitting my job. I'm starting a Moto America team, and I am racing until the money's gone. Just yeah. because I want, I I want to because I love it so much. <laughs> I mean, I can't talk with sort of the the background and your authority that you can, Jim, because you know I haven't been a racer myself. Uh, regrettably, I suppose as a just a generalistic comment, I suppose one thing that comes to my mind, sort of in answer to Paul's question, is that. You know, just the visibility and the popularity of motorcycle racing now, say, compared to the 90s, for example, whilst we still class it as quite a niche sport as compared with other forms of motorsport like F1 and so on. Nevertheless, the profile of the sport is very, very high now. And so I think what one difference I would argue now is that you won't tend to get kids that do swimming for a few years or cycling for a few years and then decide to switch over to something else. I mean, these guys are in from like virtually from the time that they can walk often with parents who have like us kind of come up through this period of trance, rainy, Rossi, you know, and as the sport has grown, so it's popularity with the sort of, um, what do you call the touchline dad, mums and dads, you know, so they've got these little kids and so these, these guys are getting in and they're sort of like some of these kids are by the time they're 13, 14, they're like seasoned pros, really, both in terms of riding and media. The whole thing has changed, really. I guess the States would be a little bit different because it's such a vast country. It's probably quite regional in the way it works to some extent as well, whereas in the UK, you know, you can drive pretty much to the northernmost track and the southernmost track in six hours, probably. So I mean, it's very, very different in that way so i suppose country to country it will be you know regionally very very different for a yeah. variety of reasons and we know that in spain and italy for example because they've had top line stars there it's it's kind of created this monster of a production line of talent that comes up and is you know i was talking with greg about this earlier on actually the fact that most of these championships are too not it's not a criticism of the country or any of the riders i, I hasten to add but there are arguably too many spanish and italian riders in a lot of these championships but it's because the other countries and i guess the states is the same you know australia's kind of fallen away in recent years to some extent hasn't it after having a lot of people that came up through the dirt and flat track route so miller being that exception right yeah miller i suppose remy gardner as well but it's just about having these national systems in place now so that you can churn the talent and get it up as you say jim to the sort of the world championship level if people are worthy so it's a little bit hard to answer paul's question in that regard i will add so one more thing he said, he said, do they start bicycle racing? As an example, I think everybody's probably heard of the, the great German McGrath on Supercross. He started BMX and transitioned to a motorcycle and won championships as a motocrosser. I don't, I don't personally know of anyone who started bicycle racing who became like a road racer and then went on to maybe Europe or CV, something like that. It's not impossible. It is all balance and, yeah. and whatnot. So it is very possible um karting is its own different thing i've known a lot of people who have raced motorcycles and then went to co-karts and then went to cars a couple of them was because their dads were carters but they liked motorcycles so they agreed to race motorcycles for a while and then they said come on you gotta get in a cart and 
you get in a car, but I don't really think too many people do. I mean, these guys probably like MotoGP guys probably got a go-kart, saw a shifter cart somewhere to play with. I'm sure <laughs> we're all speed freaks. And so going yeah. fast, is kind of fun, no matter whether it's four wheels or two. So I'm sure that they do, but I don't think they predominantly start there. I think you, everybody starts in the dirt somewhere as an amateur trying to get to be noticed and moves on from there. I mean, it sounds almost a bit silly to, as a British person who's, I mean, we're always accused of being obsessed with the weather and we kind of are because our weather is so up and down. But I mean, there is a serious point behind that, which is that we have pretty lousy weather for at least half of the year here. So we are at a sort of a meteorological disadvantage to say some of the Southern European nations where you can ride outside on decent tracks pretty much all year round so what you tend to have here certainly as far as i can recall back when i started getting interested is kind of like mini moto in kart tracks but it's a completely different kind of thing to if you're coming up through flat track or or doing more larger track based small motorbike racing in say spain or italy or whatever so i think that to be fair to the brits that has held us back a bit Uh, and things like flat track is starting to become a little bit popular here now for example because people have seen what marquez has done and obviously going back to the americans and australians through the 80s and the 90s it it gives you a set of skills that are obviously very valuable by the time you get up onto these 300 and whatnot brake horsepower moto gp bikes so yeah it's very variable from country to country i think is the answer to that question i think it is i think there's many different paths rossi was a big mini moto kid yeah Uh, you know but now he has his ranch where he teaches everybody sort of a dirt track type skill colin edwards has his camp in texas where he's teaching kids this sort of style thing or anyone really i mean anyone could go to camp it's not just kids but yeah and i knew uh there was the guy who was 250 nick einach had a super camps thing that he was doing for a while and you know all these things are different and in these camps and stuff all kind of started in the u.s and rossi kind of modeled his on all that and you know it's working right yeah. there's a flood of italians that are there but it's largely rossi rossi has a name he's a champion so you can drive that money together i think also i think i think italians are very passionate about racing in general whether it's their ferrari cars or their ducati motorcycles they're very passionate about going fast on something that's true yes in america there's a diversity of there's basketball there's baseball there's football you know the american style where you throw it and in mlb or mls major league soccer here is very popular so kids are have um, you know there's golf teams swim teams you name it there's a bunch of different things for the kids to do so it's very hard to get them interested into doing motorsports usually it's your your dad did it and you you ride with them and then you sort of go on from there Certainly, I've heard a saying something along the line, and this is relating to Italy, that, you know, the, the three pillars of the society are God, football and Ferrari. <laughs> you know, that's kind of that's the Italian sure. mentality, you know, because football's obviously super popular there. But I guess we should move on to the next yeah. one. We could run down this forever. Paul, hopefully that gives you some insight into how you get there. And there is remember, there is no one direct way there. There are multiple ways. Those are kind of what we know about. Yeah. So moving on to the 3rd of June, we had some correspondence in from Lee. Didn't give us a surname. Uh, I won't read out his tag because that might be private. But now this was in relation, as I recall, to the crash which Alex Rins had at Le Mans, which, if you remember, he lost it going into turn one, uh, went through the gravel and then kind of came off that high curb crossed it up midair and went down pretty hard and got back on the bike. And that prompted us to have a little discussion about should there be some measurement devices built into their protective equipment that measures g-forces and kind of benches you if you exceed a certain set parameter of force and 
we had a debate at the time, Jim, you might recall about, well, what would be an acceptable level of G to sustain before, you know, you were told to go to hospital and have a brain scan or something. And that's obviously something that would be for the medical people, I suppose, to uh, to ruminate on. So Lee writes, uh, Jim, you raise an excellent point with having a helmet accelerometer. If startups can put head-up displays into a helmet, why can't Shoy, AGV, etc., tackle this? If it's just an accelerometer, it shouldn't take up more space than an in-helmet mic and speaker kit. They could even mount the battery and the ECU in the hump, in the leathers. They already run the hydration tube from the hump. Shouldn't be too hard to piggyback a cord and connector. So that's the first part of his email. I, I think we probably need to break it down a little bit. Sure. So any further thoughts on that, James? I know this is, as an engineer, this is an area of extreme yeah. importance and an interest from your point of view. I think it could easily be done. The only question is, would you harm the structural integrity of the helmet? Yeah. I don't think you would, but it is something to take into consideration. The I think the second thing to this is, is the fact that what we don't really understand is most of the technically style, they, they're moving away from this in motocross. I can't remember what it is, but there's a different time of foam that can be replaced after you've had an impact. So it's it's not a memory foam, but it is a foam that flattens itself out, if you will, mm-hmm. absorbs the impact and then releases the energy around the helmet to cushion your brain uh, to reduce the concussions and things like that. But then they take it and replace that inside the helmet. It's kind of like a modular thing. Isn't it's there? a modular type of system. Yeah, It's very unique. And I am trying to find uh, helmet people to talk to about this so that I can understand it and then, you know, bring them to the show, et cetera. But yeah, I think it's very reasonable to say that we could put these types of things in there. At one point, I think F1 drivers had gloves that monitored your heart rate, uh, temperatures, body temperatures, things like that. There's all, I mean, there's easy sensors that can be done to, to know more about what the human body is experiencing in the crash. One of the things I think that really needs to be looked at is we look at helmets as in what happens in the impact. We never seem to think to understand maybe what happens in a secondary or tertiary type of impact because we've already dented the foam what happens after that and you know maybe we've survived okay maybe we have have not gotten a concussion from the first impact but that second impact is maybe the one that's getting everyone because we've we've spent time deforming the helmet now it's deformed and we're taking another impact yeah. to our head so research in that area i'm sure is probably something that just like huds i think it's called a hud system for the helmets um that they maybe they're looking into as well so then the question is like you know you are a different human being than myself rich you may be able to withstand a three and a half g impact and you will suffer no ill effects of it whatsoever i may be only able to take one and a half g's before i'm got you know blurry vision and you know, these other things that are associated with a concussion because nobody's brain is the same. But I do think that there is enough data that you could draw on from say American football, which has done massive studies on concussions and what, and helmet design and things of that, that you could piggyback off of and say, well, Hey, look guys, here's at least a baseline to start from. And once we gain more data, you know, we're going to have to say that this is where we move from. I kind of make this analogy. Remember a few years ago at Assen, Marquez had a really bad high-speed wobble and he saved it in the break zone, but the airbag went off in his suit because the airbag saw the acceleration of what was happening. He said, this is no way you're on the bike. Yeah. Well, again, that I would have been off the bike and you would have been off the bike probably, right? So our suits should have inflated at that point in time if we were on there. 
Mark Marquez is a different individual. So he has to have a little different algorithm to make his (laughs) suit work. Right. So there was learning. There's always going to be learning in it, but as long as we take it and we start with uh, a baseline that is lower than what we think, and then we slowly move up to it, we're going to ensure that we have some safety in it. I think part of the issue why this keeps coming up though, is because, you know, as we tend to rant about, I certainly do that. You just mentioned about, I think, did you say the NFL and NFL? Yeah. Things like that. You, You know, the, really started to take concussion protocols very very seriously and we still live in this kind of dr costa era it seems to me particularly in moto gp i would say more than some of the other race series like bsb or even world superbike for that matter where you know we routinely see riders having big accidents and coming back with big injuries and being allowed to ride so it just seems to me like in terms of the moto gp championship we're kind of quite a long way behind the curve in terms of where we should be and there clearly is technology out there. I mean, I'm sure, Jim, you saw the Formula One race at the weekend. Mm-hmm. I'm pre- the, yep. pretty sure, I'm, I'm guessing most people will be familiar with what happened at the start of that race, where one guy goes upside down through the gravel, goes over the barrier and get, hits into the catch fence and gets lodged you know, between the tire barrier and the fence. Slightly less dramatically in one way, but Alex Albon kind of turned sharp right and hit the wall hard. And it was him that actually ended up in hospital overnight because he had measurement equipment. Now, it might have been in the car and obviously on a bike, it's different because where are you going to put it? But I'm I'm going to say perhaps it was part of the helmet technology that they've got there where it measured the degree of that first impact. And he had two or three hits by other cars subsequent to that, Jim, just to pick up on the point that you were making. And that kind of just said, right, you're off. Sorry, chap, you're off to the hospital. And that's all there is to it. You know, we don't seem to have any or we don't have any of that technology being used in MotoGP. We don't appear to have much appetite or interest or enthusiasm from the powers that be to actually do anything about introducing it, which kind of concerns me more. Yeah, I there's a theory I have on that one. And again, this is just my personal opinion and what I, my take on it. In football, there's another player that could take your position in ice because the two sports in America that are very focused on concussions are the NFL, American style football and NHL ice hockey mm-hmm. and you know the nhl actually has spotters in the arenas that if they witness a hard hit to someone's head they will take that person off the ice off the bench and put them in a dark room and go into a concussion protocol so they take it very seriously but the thing of it is in those sports they're a team so you can put somebody else in that place now admittedly hockey only has enough players to play at that time but you you can play rotate somebody else onto a different line. You can rotate your D you can do different things, right? You're someone can take that position. They might be working harder, but they can take your spot for a little bit until you get out of that concussion protocol or whatever it is that you're doing. We don't have that luxury in our sports because the rider is the rider for that bike. There's not another one standing there that we could put on. And again, okay. Yeah. Before you yell, there's reserve riders, Jim. Yes, I know, but the team works for that guy. Yeah. And no one's going to want to, I would not want to, let's put it that way. If you crashed rich in the race and we red flag it, so we're going to have a complete restart and they determine your sensors in your airbag or helmet and say, you get a mandatory trip to the hospital. Hey, we're going to put the reserve rider on here with no practice, no time on the bike. Don't, you're not going to do it. No, right. No, no, Same thing point. with formula one, right? There's Good been point. people who have done that. And so I think we kind of, we kind of, cover our eyes a little bit and we kind of look the other way and we say you're okay to get back on this thing yeah but rins did take him out of assen because he couldn't he was having problems right Mm. couldn't couldn't ride with his wrist or whatever he said you know i'm not doing this yeah 
which is fine. I think hopefully him doing that and saying, look, I can't ride. And, and Marquez kind of going along the line, like, look, I'm going to go get my shoulder and arm all fixed because I, I can't live with this pain spurs other guys to say, look, my body is more important than what happens on that racetrack. And if you want to not pay me for that one race or whatever, screw it. Cause this is more important to what's going to happen to me when I'm 45, as opposed to what's happening to me at 25. Yeah, I must sort of say that I could never, ever be accused of being a bleeding heart liberal. But I do sometimes get the sense that there's a kind of a bit of a toxic masculinity problem in MotoGP because mm. it is so male dominated. And I'm just yep. thinking back as a recent example. And again, I'm not criticising anybody because it's been like this, you know, since Noah was a lad. Uh, and it hasn't really got any better over the period of time that I've been watching the sport. But in Barcelona this year, Alex Marquez, I think in free practice four, or possibly in Q1, had an enormous crash at the last turn, went barrel oh, yeah. rolling through the gravel and was quite clearly hurt. And, you know, I was sat there watching it thinking, well, that's him done for the day. And then a little bit later on, Lucio Cecanello, team boss, comes on. Great guy, very keen to sort of see if we could ever have a, uh, an interview with him. But he comes on the interview. Uh, I, I guess it would have been Simon Craig for stuck the mic under his nose just to ask how Alex was. And he said, paraphrasing, he said, yeah, he's got a, a mild concussion. He's feeling a bit dizzy, but he's good to go. And it was words to that effect. And I'm thinking, hang on, that should be red flags waving all over the place. But it was, you know, he's back on the bike the following morning. Now, in fairness, people will say, well, yeah, he finished, he rode, rode a good race the next day and he finished in the points, which is true. But, you know, had he had a blackout during that race and gone down and taken somebody with him, then there's a different discussion going on then. So it does worry me that the sport puts itself in unnecessary danger sometimes. Yeah, but I think also you have to trace it back to the roots of where it came from. All these sports that we love, Formula One, MotoGP, were started after the Second World War. Usually, not always, but usually a lot of these guys that became race car drivers or motorcycle racers were guys that flew fighters in the war. Yeah. So they cheated death on a daily basis. And of course, you and I will say this for my own personal well-being. When I got to the point where I knew I needed to stop, my mind knew I needed to stop. My body didn't want to stop. My heart didn't want to stop. It was very hard to feel that adrenaline rush. Mm. It's extremely difficult. And I started racing RC cars and stuff just so I could get, just so I could get the fix, right? I mean, it's, it's, it is a drug. So we have this masculinity, hero worship, fighter pilot guys that start this and it just keep, it keeps trickling down. Yeah. And then, you know, it probably no one would have probably have cared except for the fact that people like Bernie Ecclestone and Carmelo Soletta made these sports professional machines that were globally broadcast around the world that became money-making businesses. And our impression of what business is some 70-odd years after the war is it's a clean, refined, specific, and this doesn't fit that mold. And there's some counterculture kind of a thing that goes on. I like this because it isn't yeah <laughs> a health and safety wrapped thing where we're standing on tennis court or whatever right you know so yeah i don't know we're gonna get there we're going to make it better i think we just need to keep pushing for it to be better yeah and again without wishing to dawdle back too much to formula one what we saw on sunday was a good example where they particularly Formula One, I mean, almost to the detriment of the sport in some cases, because I think they're so risk averse in certain situations, like if a car stops off the track and something and they, they have to run a full course yellow virtual safety car or whatever. And you think, really, is it really necessary for that? But if you take a crash like the, um, the Alpha driver had on Sunday, 
the halo which was resisted by many of the current gridder drivers and still splits opinion in terms of whether it should be there or not i mean quite clearly was a major contributor to him not being seriously injured or or worse and as you say jim i mean when the, the sport fundamentally changed i suppose in the 60s when big money sponsors came on the scene because they didn't want particularly on live tv they didn't want people being killed and burnt to death and stuff on live television with your company's logos splattered all over the burning wreckage that started this change but it is curious to me just to come back to the question that lee posed as to why we haven't got more technology which is available being used it's a real head scratcher to me at the minute i don't understand why why it's not being pushed further than it already well being pushed unless it's going to come down the line that we don't know about yeah lee does go on with a couple more things so we'll just try and get through these reasonably quickly not really related to the first question about uh, helmet technology but he says uh, since factories like Ducati and Yamaha will run satellite teams with year-old bikes could there be a situation where they demote a factory rider to a satellite team if the new bike isn't performing and I think I know what he was angling at at this particular moment which we'll come to maybe in an effort to sacrifice the team championship in order to win the rider and factory championship would the rider maintain any points earned before the switch or start from scratch? Well, no, if a rider switches, they maintain the points that they've accrued through the season, even if they jump to a different team. I give you Maverick Vinales as the primary example. He was on the Yamaha. Exactly. Went to, a, went to the Aprilia. He kept every point that he earned on the Yamaha. Yeah. Be clear. Because that's the, the rider's championship part of the championship. That's correct. Now, I'm suspecting that, bear in mind, Lee wrote this back in June, when Yamaha were still perceived to be in a lot more trouble than perhaps we think they are now, although we only think they're not in trouble because Fabio Quattararo. I suspect that the question about bumping a rider down might have been aimed at Franco Morbidelli, which is a question that hasn't gone away in the, in the meantime, I should add. Would they demote a rider to throw the chat? I don't think they would do it for that reason. I think the teams are just very much performance orientated. And if they think a rider needs to switch somewhere else, they will go for a better rider if they think that's what they need to do. It's, I think it's just about as simple as that, really. I don't know that there's a lot of tactics about that particular thing. We don't see it happening very often anyway. No, I don't think that they would demote a rider back to a satellite team. I think they would just outright cut that rider loose. Like, mm. you again, Maverick Vinales is the primary example here, right? Yamaha was tired of his crap. We're done. You, there are, we now know there are things in a contract that can get you fired from a MotoGP ride. And I think that's what the factories would do. They would say, look, by mutual agreement, we're no longer, we have terminated your contract with immediate effect and you're not racing for us at wherever we're going next. Then it's up to the team to figure out where they're going to do. They're going to pull from the reserve rider. They're going to pull from a, maybe they could pull up from the satellite team if they wanted to. But I think they're not going to demote the rider at all. There's, it doesn't benefit them to still mm. keep it if, unless they think he's somehow going to become a better talent again. I think everybody sort of gets that one shot and sort of that's it. Zarco being the exception because, you know, he walked away from the KTM and resurrected his career on a Ducati. Somebody's going to yeah. see value in you and they'll put you on that motorcycle. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a cutthroat performance-based business. This, if, if the team thinks you can do the job, they'll put you on the bike if they can. Actually, Jim, hold that thought for just okay. towards the end about sackable offences in rider contracts because that's a pertinent thing to talk about <laughs> at the moment, which uh, yeah, we'll come to that is, a little bit later on. <laughs> the next part of Lee, or the final part of Lee's question, and I'll try and crystallise this down a little bit. Lee is pointing out to the fact that the, let's say the car industry at the moment, but by definition, the automobile industry is going down the technology route of becoming driverless 
or let's say possibly even riderless, although we haven't seen that particular aberration coming out yet, but in some sort of horrid dystopian future, the riderless bike is out there somewhere. But but his question is, with that kind of technology and that kind of um, direction of travel coming, what does that mean for race series? Do these championships die out? Are kids not interested? Are kids not even learning to ride or drive? in the conventional way that we're used to. I mean, let's look 15, 20 years down the line. If you get into a car which drives itself, you don't have to do anything. Are you then going to be particularly motivated as, as an individual to go racing at the weekend because you don't have the skill set? So I think that's kind of what he's asking. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I don't know, but congratulations to you, sir. You survived teaching your daughter how to drive a stick shift. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, he's obviously states he's here from the US, which ironically there's only 18 percent of the u.s driving population can actually drive a stick mm, that's incredible <laughs> I, I i've taught my son how to my daughter no but anyway can i just say jim for the benefit of european listeners driving stick means you you have a manual gearbox as opposed to an automatic just sure. for clarity yeah that's like every time we go every year for work it's like the guys tend to want to try to get an automatic car but just get the stick i'll drive <laughs> i don't care more even fun. if i gotta use my left-handed shift i don't care I, more fun with a stick <laughs> more fun with a stick my car is a stick i mean i love that yeah mm. but anyway we're off on a tangent when aren't we but i'm not sure what's going to happen i really don't know like my son is interested in racing we enjoy going to like the Supercross and some races together. And I haven't really exposed him to like MotoGP weekends or Motor America weekends because he doesn't really have, even at 15, he doesn't really have a long enough attention span to be there for three days at a racetrack. He's good for a few hours and he likes it and that's fine. But he's never really also expressed a great interest in riding. He has a very strong interest in mountain biking and we go mountain biking together, which I'm fine with. That's great. It's his thing he wants to do. And if he lets the old man tag along with you, great. I get some cardio and some workout and eventually maybe I can make it up the hill later on, you know, but the whole thing with racing and all that is I I, I think it's going to go to Sims. Honestly, really? You know, I just, what a depressing future. It is. It is because there's so much, it really gained popularity in the, in the, in the pandemic, right? Nobody could do anything. So people watched simulated racing and there's a lot of people who are really good at it now if you put them in a real car they're not gonna be that good because it got tried nissan had a program for their le mans cars where they picked this guy who was a brilliant driver in a sim won these sim championships they put him in a real car and they're like whoa (laughs) real life in a sim are now completely different elements because of the fact that unfortunately in a sim i don't think you care if you really go off the track or if you're going to wreck the car yeah, you might have one of those really far end rigs that'll shake you around or whatever, but you're not going upside down and feeling the impact of hitting a wall at 180. So there's a self-preservation mode that sort of kicked in. He did drive well enough to be at Le Mans. He did drive the whole 24 of the team. This is years ago. I can't remember the date. It was when Nissan was running their front wheel drive front engine car. Somebody out there is going, it's this year, Jim. I know. I, I can't think of what it is, <laughs> but you know, I just, I think like the autonomous driving thing is going to become very popular in cities because it's so dense. There's so many people, so many cars. If you have the cars all moving and talking to each other and being controlled by computers to go places, it's going to become efficient, right? It's going to be an efficient means of moving people around, which we don't technically seem to have here in the U.S. U.S. is a big country, very spread out across things. So there's always going to be people 
I think, driving cars here. The people in the cities are not going to want to drive cars, but the people on the outside are going to have to drive cars. Now, whether they want to race cars or not, I don't know. But if you drive a car, at some point, you can't think about sitting in a stoplight with a guy next to you thinking, well, I'm going to take him at the first for when the light turns green, right? I, mean, I goes in my mom always sitting there like, okay, I'm going to cheat this one and start first. <laughs> you start creeping. I'm like, you know, we're going to go here, pal. I, I just, you know, racing started when the first two rate, first two automobiles came up to each other and went nodded and said, well, all right, we're off. Right. I mean, that's, well, that's racing. Was, yeah. <laughs> I'm faster than you. I mean, motorcycling, I can even see Formula One cars getting to the point where they're driven by a remote control. So you're actually watching something real, i.e. that car, but it's being driven by someone sitting in a pit box watching a monitor. Is that racing? I don't know. I mean, like, I, I'm not a big fan of racing being fully electric. I, I'm, I'm more, I want an alternative fuel. And th- that's really starting to come to the fore. If you watch the Formula One races, weekend, you saw Vettel driving uh, the 92 Williams, and he had, the, had Nigel's Red 5 car. And they were using an alternative fuel that was carbon neutral. Still sounded great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm. So part of what is the Lord of racing is the sound. And I think a lot of it, I think it's, it may never die per se, but it's going to be in a different form than what we understand. And it could be Ducati's e-bikes. Cause quite honestly, those bikes look damn cool. And I don't know if anybody's seen a picture of it. They, they tweeted out that this is, this is what the e-bike is going to look like from Ducati. I mean, even the batteries are in like an, are in like a V configuration to <laughs> look, to mimic cylinders and stuff. I'm like, okay, that's cool. You know, there's a certain part of electric cool and the sound. I mean, like if you've heard the zero, what, what was it? The zero TT uh, yeah. with, the, with the, with the, the electric bikes. If you listen to that, there's a certain amount of cool that's in there again. We, we knew we could rely on the Italians to make a battery look sexy, Jim. Yeah, <laughs> I mean... yeah of course. <laughs> of course, you know, I don't know. I, I really just don't know where it's going to go. I don't know the future. I know kids are, are not the kind of kids I was because they've got you know, the internet and social media is the problem, I think. Mm-hmm. But okay, that's Jim's view of the world. And he's also old and I'm 50 like you, Rich. So I'm old yeah. too. So it's like, I feel like it's the scourge, right? The computer to me is a tool, just like, my toolbox contains a tool to work on a car. It's just a, a method of getting somewhere faster. No, it's not that people love it. So I, I really don't know how to answer the question. I don't know what's going to happen. I've got a theory slash hope, and I think it's a slightly more hopeful one than the picture you've painted of re- sort of remote controlled vehicles running around a track or sort of virtual reality sim racing or whatever. I mean, I take Lee's point, which is a very pertinent and well-made point which is that you know if, if people are learning to drive in the sort of let's say i'm doing inverted commas which is not much good on a podcast but conventional way if people aren't learning those skills anymore they are not necessarily going to be interested or they might be disadvantaged about sort of racing but my thought is that as the automobile cars bikes whatever sort of mass industry goes in that direction in a sense i think motorsport becomes less relevant to those companies to participate in so i almost foresee a position which would almost be like going back to the 50s and 60s where it becomes more of a sport than a business now that relies of course on legislation allowing you to still hammer around you know running various fuels or as you say jim if we're using kind of biofuels that are carbon neutral or whatever then hopefully that disagreement that objection disappears and I kind of like that idea that it just goes back to almost like a more of a grassroots thing. Okay, there wouldn't be as much money in the sport, but then, you know, we often see in car and bike racing that when you have big manufacturers involved, 
you have kind of glory years and then they start to bail out and then you're sort of you're down a steep slope of depression again in in the sport until it starts to build up again you kind of go through this peak and trough cycle constantly whereas if you went back to more the sort of the garage easter kind of days of the 50s and the 60s if you like and it was just a yeah it was just a sport that people did for fun purely for pleasure but it was still a bit more kind of environmentally acceptable then that would be a future that i could sort of um i could buy into i think and it might sustain racing into the future but who knows uh, i mean I, I do fear the sort of dystopian sim racing world that you've described and it may yet come to pass yeah i you know i do think that some people promote certain things to pad their wallet and i don't think that there is in some way sometimes sound science is ignored because of it no it's called politics jim well yeah i'm trying to be <laughs> politically correct <laughs> Well, no, but I mean, politics runs on a short cycle. And who's making money and all that. We've actually, we have had this rant on the show, admittedly, I think it probably last year, but I distinctly remember talking to you, you know, around the fact that the political cycle works on, say, a three to five year window. Very little really get, unless you're in a war state, very little gets changed massively in those kind of time periods. So people latch onto the the next thing that looks like it'll do the job to get them re-elected. And so that's why I think electric vehicles have become so kind of front and centre at the minute. And you're thinking, well, hang on, what about hydrogen fuel cell? What about this? What about that? You know, and I think ultimately those things will come, but it's just they are going to develop over a longer time period. And like you, I think electric autonomous in towns and cities, yeah, I completely buy into that. It makes total, total sense. Lots of people living in a place, no pollution. Great. If you've got to drive a thousand miles, I mean, it's going to take you weeks in an electric car currently. I mean, okay, solid state batteries are coming and they will be better and et cetera, et cetera. But I just don't think they are going to be the long-term solution. And that's before we even get into the arguments, which we won't do now, about just how environmental these vehicles are when you look at the precious metals that are in them and the amount of power it takes to charge them up. And what do you do with the bloody things when they've worn out? Because, I mean, their whole recycling aspects is yet to kind of really hit the fan. So anyway, that's a different discussion for a different day. But hopefully that means that what I can say is that motorsport is like a microcosm of the war state. And that's why motorsport has always been such a massive part of the technology drive for improving things. And so, for example, at Silverstone Formula One at the weekend, we had these very ill-informed protesters sitting on the track. I don't know if you saw this, Jim. I did not see it in any of the coverage. I heard about it, that there's people who were planning to protest. Yeah, so they were this anti-oil group. They were basically want the whole world to suddenly stop using oil, like that's a possibility. Um, so they somehow, and I don't know how they managed it, Um, I mean, there are questions to answer on this, but they managed to get through the fencing and it was by pure luck that they got out on lap one just as the red flags came out for that start line crash. Otherwise, they would have been running onto the track when the cars were going down the hangar straight at full chat. Had they done a little bit of research, they would have known that the latest hybrid engines in Formula One cars are something like 50% thermally efficient or something. It's massively more efficient than any other engine. Any other engine, yeah. They're some of the most efficient it's the sport that's pushing that technology Mm -hmm. which does trickle down and it does make the world better so you you know on on we go but yeah i'll say this about the processing there you have a right to protest you have a right to say what you want to say but that's stupid to sit there and go walk across an active racetrack with a missile coming at you at 300 uh, 200 miles an hour that's ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care if they get killed in the process. That's their choice. But if they kill a driver or a marshal or a spectator, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's, that's not the cool. thing. Yeah. That's not cool. Some, not good. All right. Let's move on to the next one here. Yeah. 
This was June 12th. This was from uh, Kyle Clark. This is in the latest episode talking about Alicia's early celebration. This is from Bar- post Barcelona. Yeah. Fill you in. Remember, Alicia got the countdown wrong and decided to celebrate his second place. Uh, what happened with Renz and Marquez a few years ago, where Renz, uh, Alex Renz took Mark, Mar- took Mark Marquez at the last corner on the second to last lap, but then Alex had to do it over again on the last lap, uh, which he did for the win. What was that Alex celebrated one lap too early or just that the that Mark uh, having passed him on the straight for the first time? And he says, I'm probably remembering it wrong. So that was Silverstone in what year, Rich? Because I know you know. Because uh, I don't remember. I'm pretty sure 20, that was 2019. 2018. 18 or 19. 19. I think it was 19. Yeah. But what it was, Marquez had been leading the race the whole time and Mark had used up his rear tire. So Renz was able to get by on the Suzuki while you got the hanger straight. And that missile of a Honda went past that Suzuki mm-hmm. like it had dropped anchor, <laughs> only for her to get back to, uh, is it Stowe, Woodcott, and then Woodcott, back yeah. around. Yeah, Woodcott. Okay, Woodcott back around to the start finish line to where Renz was able to get by because Marquez didn't have any drive to get there. You waxed poetic in your response to Mr. Clark. Uh, so, but I do think probably maybe some other people might've been thinking the same thing. So that's what really had happened. No, there was definitely no sandbagging going on that day. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a, a straight out flat out race. And as you say, for whatever reason, Marquez perhaps chewed his tire a little bit, but you know, I was in the stands that day. He was a beautiful hot sunny day i was there in my full uh, suzuki gear and um, so i was sort of having my rins but is my boy uh, so i was kind of watching with interest he was tracking marquez that a whole race so yeah got past him with one lap to go uh, just coming across the line but as you say jim mark got him back and then he just yeah stalked him for that last lap and literally by a tire whip got across the line first so there's definitely no sandbagging going on or, or, or mistakes in terms of lap counting or anything like that the other thing that Kyle mentioned on the same email was about the Yamaha satellite team. So this is obviously referring to the RNF team. I was wondering if Fabio's new salary helped its demise. I don't think that had anything to do with it. I think that was more that RNF had just given a better deal by Aprilia and decided to walk. Yeah, I, I, I had said that I don't think the salary had anything to do with it. One, I think I think Fabio's salary is pretty much paid for by Monster. Yeah, I think that's probably where that is. He probably more than likely got a pay raise too to resign. Uh, the whole deal is is that Yamaha was asking for a lot of money to rent a set of year old motorcycles. I'm quite sure that the Prilia deal was brand new 2023 bikes on a reasonable amount of money, allowing yeah. the team to have you know different riders or whatever. Uh, that was that. That's the whole issue for that one. It was just too much for it. Much the same as happened with KTM when uh, when they went to Tech Three. Correct. I you guess. know, Tech Three got tired of the deal Yamaha was was giving them, and KTM said, "Well, I, we got a deal for you. Here's this." I mean, I think that's just where it is. Uh, it's Yamaha has been trying to, I think, downsize that program to cut the costs because I think really the only people who really have all the money are Honda. I mean, they got probably more money than all the other factories put together, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they've got a big R&D budget that's probably astronomical. I'm amazed to really actually decide to have a satellite team, to be honest with you, considering the fact that they are so small. Well, but, uh, I mean, they are part of the Piaggio group of companies, and that is a big-ass company with a... Uh, well, I mean, I'm not... Obviously, I'm not an accountant. I don't know what their books are saying, but I'm sure they have got money to spend. I think it's been a question of that team getting to the stage where they were worthy of having the money thrown at them to spend. 
and sure you know they've got some good people i mean they've, they've been a, again a bit of a divisive team in the way it's been managed and how they've handled riders and particularly second riders over recent seasons but they've got the mix right between the commercial and the technical leadership in the team and they're clearly doing a lot of development work if you look at the aero packages that they're bringing on so they're obviously getting quite a bit of money there's quite a lot of sponsorship on that bike but you know piaggio is a, is a big organization so i think there obviously is more money being thrown at that project now and it's quite clearly bearing fruit so yeah obviously rnf it was a no-brainer for them oh yeah it's it's a no-brainer they got a better deal they walk yamaha kind of gets what they want the end of it the end of a deal and i think yamaha needs a breather Mm. on this one because i think rossi's going to come knocking on the door for a satellite team yes and the persistent rumor about are they going to move away from the inline four gym doesn't go away there are some people that i listen to that say no that is absolutely the dna of yamaha They'll never go V4, but... I can't see them doing it. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I can't see them going away from the inline four. I can see them going away from a cross-plane crank, okay? Mm. That I can say that, yeah, I get it. You're you're not going to do that idea anymore. So there's obviously something there. Just like Suzuki would never run a V in MotoGP. Although I think, didn't their, their first one was a V? The first four-stroke one was of a V configuration, wasn't it? I thought it was. Uh... Well, it was certainly called the GSV, so I'm assuming that that yeah, is I think the it case. Was, yeah, because yeah. yeah. this is a GSR. Yes, that's right. Which is the inline across it. So, which made sense. It was. I, I never. I wondered why Suzuki built a V in the beginning because they are. I mean, they're known for their GSXR, which went inline four, and obviously you can make it run. We've seen what it can do. We're going back, obviously, as many listeners will know, to the early noughties now in terms of the GSV MotoGP bike. But that was a it was a good bike. It was just let down by Lange Electronics and a lack of software knowledge, mm. I think. You, you know, if you go back to some of the stories that Kenny Roberts Jr. and John Hopkins, who were the riders on that team at that time, fly-by-wire throttles that just stuck open going into corners. And it was a, just a horror show for them. Uh, but the bike itself, I think, sweet chassis. I think that engine was good. They just couldn't managed power or the delivery yeah there we go uh, but the other thing about fabio's salary we don't know what his salary or i don't know what his salary was sure previously and i don't know what it is under the new deal but it might well be the case that he didn't get as big a raise as he was hoping for because of course he left the negotiations long enough that the suzuki bombshell broke and then his position of negotiation was severely weakened at that point because yeah. there were two other top line riders on the market so it might be that he didn't actually get that big of a raise after all yeah, which is interesting because obviously if you're quattro you would have been angling for a ducati ride sit yeah. alongside ben yaya but you didn't get it it makes you wonder why you either decided hey this bike's really good and i'm leaning a championship against so why not stay okay you mentioned it about this engine kind of guru or a couple of guys coming in from yeah, the automobile yeah, yeah. i wonder if that's played quite a big part but again it does open that question about what are they going to be doing with that engine well this guy was supposedly worked with ferrari for formula one mm. he worked with aprilia here and they they say that's a lot of the reason why aprilia is as good as it is now right so this guy's obviously got something that he's got his head up you know is sharp to understand what they need and you know what maybe you, you know, they kind of do this with i'm a big fan of hockey so they kind of this with like hockey teams right you you have your star player you pay him a lot of money but the team always says hey look this is what we're going to do we're going to fill in maybe your best player is a left shot defenseman if you know hockey you know what i'm talking about if you know i'm sorry and then hey well we're going to find this guy who's going to be a right shot play on the right side give you a tandem blah 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 and you have some plan that you lay out and you either buy in and accept the the nine million dollar a year deal that they're going to pay you or you say no no thanks i'm going to go to free agency or whatever it is right i think the same thing is playing out 
out here with Quatrao, right? Hey, look, we can, well, we, we scraped it up and we asked Monster, they can give us another million dollars a year for you. Okay. But hey, guess what? We have this engine guru who's going to come in and kind of reevaluate how the engine works. And if you work with him, we'll make this better and we'll be better together. And hey, after that, maybe we can give you a little bit more, you know, yeah. or they may have read it like, hey, you can have, well, how about we give you more of a championship bonus next year if you can win it again? Yeah. Fair enough. I still hold to the romantic view that most of these guys, primarily, they just want to win. Yes. The whole salary thing is really just a trans snake measurement exercise. You know, if if he over there is getting paid this much, I should be getting paid a bit more. It's that kind of a deal. Whether they're worth it, whether that's good value for money for the team is kind of a whole different question. But fundamentally, these guys just want to be on the best bike or at least have a good enough bike that they can win on. I'm sure that's the case with Quattro. He seems like that kind of a guy. Yeah, I agree. He wants to win. I think that's the most important thing. I mean, he went to a sports psychologist to figure out how to get mentally tough. Yeah. So that means you really want to win. If you want somebody else to invade your brain. Big time. So 14th of June, we started a, a fairly significant uh, back and forth with longtime listener and supporter of the show, Alan Fleming. Uh, do you want me to have a quick stab at the first part of this, Jim? Yeah, go it's, for a, it, yeah. it's a long one. So <laughs> try and, oh, yeah, go and for try it. And you get that smooth British accent. Try so and paraphrase this it. down a little bit. So he says, I have a long memory and can remember the days in the 80s and the 90s when the big criticism in all major motorcycle racing series, primarily from riders, was the perceived favouritism shown by racing organisations towards certain races or nationality of races. I think that the cut and dried rules that have been put in place over the past four years in GP is a reaction to this by trying to have objective rather than subjective rules. You touch the green four times during a race, you get a long lap penalty, you touch the green on the last lap, you get a penalty of dropping a position, you dawdle around in qualifying. Uh, so, so he lists some of the things that we've seen in terms of some of the antics that goes on and what the repercussions in terms of penalties are. Uh, after these rules were put in place and were being applied, the uproar from both racers and fans has been deafening, which is true, and we've been amongst the people making the noise. But that rider only barely touched the green is the often spoken defence, let's say. Uh, So it seems now that race direction is trying to bring some subjectivity back into it. Um, Tatsuki Suzuki, as an example, may have touched the green on the last lap, but was jostled in a battle. So, yes, because that was, I think, at Aston Gym, wasn't it? When or was it Barcelona? No, maybe it was Barcelona in the Moto3 race, Suzuki definitely dropped onto the green on the last lap. And I was thinking he's going to get a place demotion down to fourth. From th- I think he was third in that race. Of course, it yep. never happened. So he says, was that really re- a racing incident or was that just a subjective judgment? So we're going away from the objective thing again. So now the complaints are, why aren't the rules being applied consistently? So I think it's only a matter of time before the accusation of favouritism returns. So, Alan says, in conclusion, my question is, which do you think is the approach race control should take? Should there be strongly defined rules which are applied consistently no matter what? Or should race direction be much more subjective where hopefully qualified officials can make decisions about what they think was or wasn't worthy of a penalty? Now, we talk about this just about every sodden race at the moment. Uh, and mm-hmm. I don't think the issue is going to go away anytime soon. So it's a hot potato, this one. So have a go, Jim. <laughs> uh, here it comes. You yep. wanted a rant. Here it comes. Here it comes. This, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Yeah, I'm I'm old school. And the thing of it was, if you didn't like how somebody was riding, you went to them and you had a little talk back in the pits about what was going on. It was a self-policing environment, right? And 
okay, I get it. This is, this is not 1980 anymore. We're, you know, 30 years on and you can't 30, 40 years on now. And you can't be that way. The world's moving, it's changing. You're just trying to be a dinosaur in the old days. Okay, fine, whatever. There is no room in the rule book, in my mind, for favoritism. You are there as a steward of the rules. These are the rules. This is how it's written in black and white. And what's important is that this is my interpretation of those rules. Now, when we were racing, we had some refs that you'd show up at a, at a re, they were regional, AMA regionals for dirt track. This, so this is way long ago. And one of the guys, one of the refs was Art. Now, my old man and Art did not get along with each other, okay? But the thing of it was, no matter what you did with Art, Art always held the same opinion and he looked at everything the same way and he made the decision the same way. And his the thing that he said, which was like sort of the defining part of it all was that's how I saw it and that's what we're doing. He made a decision, he stuck to it and it was, and the only thing was, and, and, you know, people would look at art in the face and it wasn't just, you know, my dad, it was a lot of the other dads too. They'd be like, well, hey, just remember this the next time we have a something like this. And sure enough, there would be another instance just like it. Take your pick for whatever one you want to pick. The the Lacious, the, the Quattro Lace thing, the Rins and, to, uh, and Nakagami thing. Yeah. To take any one of these instances, whatever you want, it was always applied in a consistent and fair manner. In which case, we're not seeing any of that anymore. Okay. Number one, you have taken a lot of these racetracks and you have gone on to where you want to preserve the multi-million dollar Formula One car so it doesn't get dirt in itself. So you can drive the car back on the track because you guys only got 20 of them anyway. So you want to space them out enough so that everybody can see a car go by. Stop with the blacktop on the outside of the curbs. Put two feet of grass there and I guarantee you that this running off the track crap is going to stop. And if you were able to somehow come, come off and come back on and be ahead of somebody, bravo, my man, because you are obviously the best rider there because you kept something on the upright that wasn't there. Yeah. You can still have some tarmac on the outside there, okay? I'm, 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 I'm not going to say that you can't need it for Formula One cars and whatnot, but if you put two feet of grass after the curves and then you put a gravel trap or you, then you put some pavement or something out there and to, you know, the Formula One car can recover and come back in, then gonna be, there ain't going to be a motorcycle out there. I'm mm. telling you, not yeah. going to happen, right? And it's... And then, you know, the other problem with all these is that they're not looking at them square, right? If Nakagami should have been penalized, without a doubt. There's nothing different between it. Because if you, how can you let that not be a penalty and say Quattro gets a penalty? They're beyond me. I've heard a couple of things on, uh, you're talking about Nakagami taking out Rins and Banyai in Barcelona. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just, can I just say, I, I mean, my position on this is that we've got ourselves in a bit of a muddle. (laughs) <laughs> to use a good old British word. A muddle. Okay, I got to use that at work someday. Yeah. We're in a muddle. Two things for me. First of all, there's too many damn rules. Too many rules written down on the statute books. I mean, if you go back to the 80s, Jim, probably the rule book was 10 pages. Now it's like Tolstoy's War and Peace, probably. And you, <laughs> you literally need like a, a month to read through it. And how anybody knows that document? And I'm just talking about the sporting code, probably, let, let alone the technical rules. So that's the first thing. I think there's just too many rules. The second thing is that we've got analysis paralysis going on, which is every which way camera angles, every which way telemetry data. And I think this is, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because I knew we were going to be having this discussion and I've kind of written down two pages of notes, which I'm not going to read out, but I was was trying to just sort of crystallise in my mind, what the hell is going on? And I just think that 
part of the reason why we get this frustration where we see, oh, incident has been noted, it will be looked at after the race, is that they've just got so much data to analyse now. They just can't do it in a live race situation. And so we've kind of ended up in this weird situation where, you know, every race is at risk of the result being different, you know, after a couple of hours, once the race is finished, or people get shuffled out of part Ferme because they're not third or second, they're fourth or fifth or whatever, because they've been penalised for something. And I just think, as you say, Jim, just let them race. If somebody does something like completely stupid, dangerous, coming back, I was wrong about when we were talking about the Assen weekend. I hadn't seen qualifying. And if you remember, Miller got a penalty for impeding uh, Vignales mm-hmm. in qualifying. And uh, what I didn't know, and I realised subsequently, was that Miller had actually gone down. And that's yes. why his foot peg came off. And it was like one minute of qualifying left. Mm-hmm. So for him to come back on the track, on the racing line, going at a quarter of the speed was just stupid. Right. It's dangerous. So okay. But there should be a quarter worker there that says, Jack, there's a minute left yeah. and you have no foot peg. Yeah. Put it over there. Yeah. But I understand why he got a penalty for that, because that was just, you know, brain out moment. And I'm not saying he's a brain out guy because he's not. But in the heat of the moment, he just gets back on the bike and that's what happens. So you do need a penalty for that. But you always come back to the Rubbins racing thing. And we're just sort of so, yep. so scared to death now of, of any incident. You know, it's, you must get into the stage of saying, well, why bother racing? And that's obviously what Quattararo effectively put out in that very sarcastic tweet that he issued and he's right to Aston, and he's absolutely right. He's positively right in what he said. Look, here's the definition of racing in my book. Look this up on YouTube, people. 2002 World Superbikes, South Africa. Noriyuki Haga, Colin Edwards, and Troy Bayless. The three of them have one of the most bar-banging battle, elbow-out races you can possibly imagine. They are beating on each other in a way that would cause everybody in MotoGP right now to go crying to the stewards that he bumped me, he pushed me off, he didn't, on and on again. And these three guys get done and they're standing on the podium and each one of them's got a smile on their face. It's so big and they're all, Bayless is looking at it. was like, man, that was a great race. Oh man, that was fantastic. It was awesome. That's racing. That's what we want, right? I don't, again, we've had this rant a million times. When that race is over and three people are on the podium, that is who's on the podium. That's it. You need to know before you leave. I have this complaint about F1. I have it about MotoGP now. Yeah. Right. And you're you good. Let's be honest. Uh, try and get my dates right here so I don't get called out. But um, Harath 2004, Rossi and Jib are now into the final turn. Mm-hmm. Well, Rossi probably would have been penalised for that, and he'd have had a long lap at the next race. You know, right. putting Jim and Aaron, uh, you know, uh, Rossi Stoner at Laguna Seca. Uh, what about the one where Rossi cuts the chicane and acid and wins at the end? Yeah, that was. He get mean, pushed out. Yeah. Oh, Rossi's the Rossi wins. We celebrate these things as great yes. moments of the sport. If they happen today, they result in penalties and sanctions of all sorts, and it's just bonkers. I mean, if you're going to race these sorts of machines at these sorts of speeds on these sorts of tracks incidents are going to happen so whilst i accept that some rules have to be there of course they do and you're particularly looking for anybody that's kind of having a brain out moment i'll come back to the nakagami thing in a second for the rest of it i just think it's racing and i totally agree with you jim i mean i I realize that bikes and cars race on the same tracks and you know they can't change corner profiles and you know what's on the outside of a turn week in week out it's just not practical or, or cost efficient to do it. But, you know, I think there's a good argument that Formula One could do with having gravel traps back as a, you know, as a, a useful deterrent or a, at least a penalty for going off track. Because, again, yeah. people just go off track with no, there's no jeopardy in it, really. Right. So just just hold that thought right there because I want to put this in here. Think about it. That's why street courses are so cool in F1 because there's nowhere to go. It's a wall. Yeah. 
And I think that's why we're seeing more street courses coming back, Jen, because they introduced that level of jeopardy again. Correct. And that's why we look at like Audrey Berzon, we look at Monaco, and we look at them in, in, in Miami. We look at those on, with great flair of, uh, not flair, we look, uh, I don't know. We look, we, we really want those races because it, you have to be inch perfect. Yeah. And you revel in watching the guy with the skill that gets it to within the millimeter and sets the pole lap. And you're just like, my God, that was amazing. How did he do that? Because he's playing with millimeters of space. And that's yeah. what you want to see. This is what that's what these guys are so good at. That's why they're where they are. And you're and you're taking away our visual cue that lets us see how good they are because, well, I'm just going to run off here. That's the startling thing. That's why you like Marquez because he's doing something that's so amazing when the front end's gone and you're like, that's a crash. Any mere mortal is going to crash, yet Marquez doesn't crash. That's what this is all about, right? I hate to say it racing is too much of a business and it needs to be more of a show. Now I don't mean show as in corny, crazy pre-race things and stuff. Okay. I mean, a show, a spectacle, a, you want to walk away from the, that 45 minutes that you watch 300, 300 horsepower, 200 mile an hour MotoGP box. And you want to go, wow, that was awesome. Yeah. That's all you're looking for. You want to be entertained for that you don't want to sit there and be called oh this guy touched the green paint over in turn nine and well we're gonna to have to give him a penalty you do not want that and let's not forget world superbike last year in uh manny cool oh, yeah yeah i mean johnny ray and his team dobbing in rasgati oglu because they spotted that he dropped in by literally millimeters and, it, and then he got a post-race sanction for it i mean it's just yep. it's like playground sort of uh antics now i, I wrote funny enough just picking up what you just said on my sort of notes of where I sort of wrote my mission statement of what's gone wrong. The first line of it says, is it a sport or is it a show? Uh, by which I mean, I think the desire to make it a show, that they're kind of legislating this sport out of existence if they're not careful by trying to manipulate stuff to be so controlled to make yeah. it a good show that they're actually, it's, it's that law of unintended consequences. They're making the show really shit at the moment and they're turning fans off at a time, funnily enough, when Formula One is going through the roof and they mm-hmm. need to try and understand that, I think. But yep. Just to launch another of my favourite British words, well, favourite words at you, just coming back to the Nakagami Barcelona thing, because I heard, you know, an eminently qualified person to discuss the matter in terms of why he was saying Nakagami shouldn't have had a, or didn't get a penalty for that incident. And I was just thinking, this is, you know, discombobulation gone mad now. Um, that's mm. the word, by the way. Nakagami, as I understand the reason that the stewards concluded that he wasn't to be sanctioned was that he did most of his overtaking on the straight because he made a very good start which is true yep i agree with that and then when he got down to the braking zone yeah he overbraked and lost it but there was no intent it was a mistake now that's a credible argument but it is it is uh, but it's only but a credible what did you argument. but it's only a credible argument jim if you then make sure you penalize other people for having similar incidents which they haven't been doing correct Miller on Rins in Portimao, mm-hmm. uh, Banyaya on Martin in the first race in Qatar. I mean, the list is endless, right. and that's only MotoGP, let alone yeah. in the other classes. So The problem is you now are deciding intent. Yeah. You know, okay, I don't mean to cut you off, Rich, are you? We're, we're just over-regulating and trying to overthink yeah. everything, and with so much data and analysis available, you just get completely confuzzled and, and discombobulated and lost in it, and you start making inconsistent and or poor calls, and that's exactly where we've landed now. Yeah. And I don't quite see how we get out of this one in the short term. Without mass, you know, and all the time, massive damage has been done to the reputation of the sport. Well, you know what? 
somehow you figure out how to hire Stuart Higgs and you put him in charge of stewarding. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Okay, there's how you get out of it. All right. Yeah. Props to the BSB for their for Stuart Higgs. But the whole penalties and how they're doing it is wrong. I don't like how they're I don't I don't like the long lap. I don't there's so here's the quick synopsis of Jim's running Moto GP with an iron fist. This is how it's going to be, right? So for me, I think if you jump a start, it's not a long lap. I think you should have to have a ride through penalty mm-hmm. or more correctly, a ride and hold penalty where you come to the pit box, you're held for five seconds and then you're allowed to leave. Cause I want to make sure you're at the back of the pack. I mean, you're not going to be anywhere because you screwed up. You jumped. I know you jumped. You're not going anywhere. If you were there in an incident with another rider and you knock a rider, another rider down, there's no, there's no, you know, there's no long lap penalty for that one either. Right? That one's just a ride through the pits. Like, Hey, you need to come down this there. You need to think about what you did, ride through, come back out again. Now, I think a long lap has a good point if you were to, say, exceed track limits, right? Now, I don't mean you got pushed out over there. I mean, you ran off and you ran off again and you ran off one more time, right? Mm-hmm. Now that a long lap seems to be a justifiable thing. Like, look, you're, you, you did this, maybe some of it not intentionally. You're riding hard and you misjudged it. Got it. There's a lot going on. But you need to correct yourself by taking a long lap penalty. And the biggest thing about it is you'd have to be 100% consistent with what you do. If the incidents look similar from the outside, I don't give a crap what the data says. Will he break two meters later or two meters earlier on this one? Don't care. From the eye test, from the eye test, if it's visual to it, then it's there. You're talking about dealing with that. And you make a decision based on the visual of it. No more analyzing. Hey, give me your data from your bike. I want to know if you're braking too soon, too late, whatever. Mm. Don't care. This is what I saw. This is my call. There's no other judgment. If you don't believe me, you have to have trust in me that the guy who's running the show is going to be fair and equitable across the entire season. And that's all we're looking for. I think that's all anybody's looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, I mean, there's the thing of it is the penalties aren't severe enough. This, oh, you get, you get two long laps. Ugh. I mean, okay, I get it. Potentially, you're thinking there's people in the pit lane, but you're more than willing to run MotoGP bikes down the pit lane to change them when they're raining, when it's raining. So don't tell me, give me that crap you're worried about safety because you obviously you're not. Because mm. if you're really worried about safety, you'd red flag the race, you put everybody on a wet setup, and you'd go back out again, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, this whole flag to flag thing is another thing, but but I'm running the show, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm okay. It's okay. I'm, I'm not there. But I mean, that's the thing. It's like the other thing too is is that you get to this other thing. I think they need to have a rider rider penalty point system. And I think it's been used before. Yeah. And it's kind of gains favor, adds favor, or whatever. But let's say you got 20, you have 20 races. Let's just make a round number, right? If you get to eight points in 20 races for offenses deemed that way. And I think rider points should only be in the say in the case of you taking somebody down. It's not a track limits thing. It's not, it's you violated some safety regulation, i.e. Jack Miller, you came back onto that's okay. Sorry, let's back up here just a little bit. There should be a technical competent technical person at a at a corner that can make a decision about whether or not that butter cycle and that rider can get back onto the track. Mm. no fluids right zero no fluids hey if you've broken a foot peg if you've broken that if you've broken a clutch lever broken a brake lever you are done no questions asked that bike will be put on a truck and be taken back so with that said if you then ignored what was said to you by a cornering crew and did a jack miller and got back on the track and then impeded impeded 
matter of your knowledge, you would receive two penalty points or whatever, right? You get to eight, eight's a race ban. It's that simple. Yeah, yeah. All right, and then you're on probation. You yeah. got three races, and we'll, and if you go, go probation after that, you set out, you ride three more races on probation. If you don't do anything stupid in those three races, guess what? You're not going anywhere. There's, it's just, it's just ridiculous. I mean, there's, you know, the hardest part of it all is, is you got to have an iron fist. And you're going to piss people off. Somebody's not going to like what you said, but they're going to have to respect that you have been consistent across the board with what you're doing. And right now, we are not being consistent across the board. Yeah, and that's just where we are. I mean, another good one, for example, how often have we seen and I mean, it doesn't happen massively often, but I can think of at least three or four occasions when, you know, like a rider will punch out or hit out another rider because something's gone on. I mean, that one gets you benched. I think that that one is so dangerous and out, yeah. of, out of order in terms of sporting code. Uh, just picking up on the, the whole thing, if you go down in the gravel and, you know, maybe the bike's damaged or whatever. I mean, we have this in BSB again. You know, if you crash in the race, you're out. You are not allowed to remount that bike. It's an accepted rule. The riders don't necessarily like it, but they know the rule and you don't get much trouble. It just takes a bit of time for it to bed in. Right. And if they crash in qualifying, they are allowed to take the bike back to the pits, but only once a marshal has given them the okay to do so. I, he's checked or she's checked that there is no fluid coming out of that bike from somewhere or there's no obvious damage that means it's just not safe to re-enter like sensors are hanging off or whatever. So in Weira, when we were racing, Weira defined a crash as if the handlebar touched the ground. And if you crashed in a corner in a weirer race, you got your bike back up, you had to go back into the pits to the tech official and have your bike teched again before you could continue on. Right. And the thing of it was, what was, you know, I'm, shout out to the corner workers and everybody who, who does this. But at a weirer race, if you put your bike on the ground and you slid off, you go run back to your bike and they help you get it back up. They would be yelling at you. You must tech. You must go to tech. You must go to tech. They were, you know, there was, you were definitely being told. So shout out to them for telling you what you had to do. Right. Cause mm -hmm. you know, it's different to, it, from time to time. So I don't know. I think we've kind of beat this one to death. How, don't you think, Rich? Yeah. And I'm sure it's going to generate some more stuff. Oh, I'm sure it will. I mean, Alan did, um, it was Alan, but yeah, Alan Fleming did come back with some more follow-up on it, and it went on went on a little bit. But let's just jump to the last one, which yeah. was our good friend, again, long-term listener and supporter of the show, Gary Shavit. Not a man that's known for holding back in his opinions, which is great. Yep. So Gary says, just had to make two observations about the races on Sunday. Now this is talking about Aston. Number one, the Dumb Luck Award has got to go to Gravara. By dropping to fifth place, he avoided getting bowled over and ended up on the podium. Now, you came back, Jim, and kind of said with that one, you didn't think that that was anything to do with Dumb Luck. It was a Moto3 race. You know, you, one minute you're sixth, the next minute you're first, then you're tenth, then you're third. It's that's that kind of a deal. And, it okay, was, some other yeah. people fell off and he ended up on the podium. I mean, that's just the way it went. But as simple as that one, I think our view on that particular thing. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose in a sense... It is dumb luck because nothing that Gravara did really contributed to him getting on the podium. It was just, that's the way it turned out. Other than the right. fact that he'd ridden the bloody brilliant race the whole oh, race yeah. long. But he, the, way, the only time he didn't leave was like the last yeah. three laps of that race. And to finish first, first he was finished. Okay, he didn't finish first, but he was on right. the podium. So that was a relatively straightforward one. But then I think the more pertinent question that Gary came with was, uh, how dumb are they at Yamaha? Oh, I love this guy. When they send out the only rider they have who can handle their bike 
on a damaged bike, which is a lap down and has zero chance of even picking up a single point when it's threatening to rain. So, I mean, I think that was a fairly nice crystallisation of the absurdity of what happened in that two or three lap period that Asim with Fabio Quattro. Jim, off you you go. I I was completely in the same boat with Gary. Like, okay, why? You know, Quattro has fallen. He's picked it back up. He's come to the pits. He's obviously something he dislikes in this motorcycle. Why are you firing it back up and sending him back out again? Um, so I was, I'm completely in the boat with, in, in the same boat. I'm rolling the same direction as you are, man. And we're zooming on down the water. Our good, our good friend Lynn kind of chimed in on this. It, Lynn said to the fact of, well, wait a second. Hey, it was raining. And if Quattro was back out on the bike and the rain hit, he could then legally change from a broken bike to the wet bike and continue on in the race. And perhaps Quattro being fairly good in the rain yeah. could have managed to get to a point. Somebody could have fallen off, run off, et cetera. And Done all that. So, okay, I see that strategy, but you're, you know, the odds were slim to none at that point being a lap down that you would have been able to unlap yourself and then catch back up to gain a point. If you were counting on attrition to happen, okay, that's mm, so you could maybe do that, but I don't think that you could, could count on that. Um, I do think that sometimes. You have to look at yourself and go, hey, look, this was this was not our day. It was not our weekend. But for whatever reason, we just put this thing back in the garage. Let's think about what we did. Let's come back at him after the five week break. And let's just go get him again, Tiger, because, you know, you, you you your closest competitor sort of went off in the crash with you and was at the back of the pack. So odds were that Aleish was not going to to gain uh, many points. He rode impeccably to be able to get to fifth, I think. Fourth. Fourth, thank you. To get back to fourth place is an incredible ride from 15th to fourth at Assen on a fast track. Yeah. is an incredible ride. And again, if Yamaha had not had Quattro there and let left him be, right, and not risk injury, which is potentially, I mean, if Quattro would have fallen off that bike, broken a wrist, um, a collarbone, all of which were possible. Possible outcomes, yeah. I mean, I yeah, I get it. There's five weeks for you to heal up again, but... I just there shouldn't have been five weeks though, Jim. Right. I agree. They could have been gone two weeks to the Kimmy ring and then three yeah. weeks after that. So you could have done yourself some damage. It would I I don't think it was smart, but again, Lynn Jarvis, who is not on my Christmas card list, does something that I think shouldn't have been done, which is forced Fabio Fabio Quattro to go back out and ride that bike. I mean, I don't know if we're being unfair to Lynn Jarvis on that one. I, I no, mean, I don't I know who actually made that's the call say, people. you know, Fabio, off you go. But, you know, it is an almighty risk when a bike's gone down like that because we've seen it, as we mentioned on the last episode, you know, sensors get damaged. And as far as I understand it, that is what caused him to high side. And as you say, Jim, I mean, that's the sort of crash that slow speed, but they tend to be the, can quite often be the worst ones in terms of where and how you come down on the tarmac. So, I mean, he did hobble off, but I don't think he's too seriously injured, but that could have turned out a lot, lot worse. But yes, I mean, Len made a good point. I, I think at the time when that crash happened, as in the high side after they sent him back out, I don't think the uh, sort of the damp condition flags, you know, the, the the white flag with the red cross, I don't think they were waving at that point. But clearly yeah. there was the likelihood that there was going to be a bit of precipitation. So perhaps that was the technical dice, you know, that Yamaha rolled in that heat of the moment decision to say, Fabio, off you go. But anyway, the funny thing yep. about that was that Gary had sent in those couple of points having watched the races uh, and it was within a day of us uh, releasing the episode where we were actually talking about the race weekend and we had also been or I'd been going on about things like do you give an extra point for fastest lap 
We had a long discussion about uh, jump starts and whether there should be a little bit of leeway. So Gary got straight back on top of that very large soapbox of his and, and um, started to give us chapter and verse on his thoughts on it, which again is absolutely brilliant. So again, I'll try and crystallise this down a little bit, but absolutely no extra points for anything. So he's very much on your side of the fence with that one. Fair enough. As it should uh, be. <laughs> Pole position is its own reward. And I that's totally right. I totally agree with that. And that's beautifully put. A jump start is a jump start, whether it's a millimetre or five metres. Okay, fair enough. I mean, that's Gary's opinion. I, I still think that there could be a little bit of leeway given the tightness of the decisions that we see getting made nowadays. We were also having a rant about the front and rear ride height devices. Which, by the way, as an FYI in this, the MotoGP grid will be sans front end ride height devices after the end of this year. They will be banned. Did they reverse that? No, I think that's uh, bizarrely it applies to Moto2 and Moto3 where they don't actually have I could have sworn that MotoGP bikes didn't, weren't going to be allowed to have a front end shapeshifter. Uh, maybe the front. I think the rear The space, front, they're not it? allowed. I'm pretty sure next year they're banned for next year because I read that in Matt Oxley's article on Motorsport Magazine. They, there are no shapeshifters for Moto3 or Moto2. They're like, no, that's just not going because of cost. Which I understand. That's been written into code as of today with a with a release that okay. came out. No shapeshifters of any sort in Moto two or three, which is right. good. And the front end ones are gone for in Moto GP next year. You can still have a rear ride height, but you right. can't drop the front. Okay, cool. So, all right, just to clarify all that. So Gary kind of yeah sort of took us on a little bit on this one, and I'm going to let you read your reply to him, Jim, because I think you <laughs> kind of really covered this one nicely, but. To quote Gary's uh, email, it says, you're worried that a front stroke rear ride height controller failure might cause an accident. And this is because we've been waxing on about the failure that Vignal has had at the Saxon ring. Mm-hmm. It says, really, this coming from Isle of Man TT fans, a race that kills riders and all fans every year. In prototype racing, any innovation should be allowed. I don't even like the engine type regulation. Displacement and total bike weight should be the only limitations. Now, I must say, I do agree with Gary on the prototype thing, particularly with regards to engines, although this invariably is more of a cost-related thing, the reason for that being in there. But it's not truly prototype in the way that we sometimes say that it is. You took issue with his point on the TT, but you, I think, sent back a very measured uh, response to that. Thank you. So for those listening what i said was that hey look this is the isle of man is a throwback it is something that happens that's not natural anymore and there are plenty of people who long for the old school old day going to a racetrack like the tt and doing it there's a bit of romance there if you will and the other thing is too is that if you go to the tt you fully expect and know and understand exactly what can happen to you at the TT. You have decided in your own mind, you are willing to take that risk, whether it's a mechanical failure of your motorcycle, a tire problem, whatever it may be, you've decided that that risk is enough for you to go there and to do the TT. My take on it was, hey, look, here is a very professional very business-like series that ties itself on running a very professional program to the highest standards of safety with track inspections and barriers and walls and air fences and everything else that's associated with it. In which case, then you are okay with a series that in some way takes safety as a serious point. And therefore your risk that you are willing to take by getting onto that motorcycle and racing on that track is reduced from say the Isle of Man. Like if the Isle of Man is, is I'm only willing, I'm only going there and I understand my risk is I have a, and I have no idea. Let's just throw it out there. I have a 25% chance of 
dying because of what happens at that track, then, okay, I go to a MotoGP high-end level. I'm looking at maybe only a 5% chance that I could die. Yes, I know people there have been terrible accidents that have cost the lives of several riders in the last few years. And again, you know, it's pack riding, which is one of them. Uh, another one was that there was immovable objects that are too close and the gravel traps there at Barcelona for, I can not think of the, the poor gentleman's name. That was, it was a moto two or moto three guy oh, Louis that Salon. died there. Louis Salon, thank you. That happened there. I get it. Well, that, there's always that risk. And you accept that risk that you're going to get on a motorcycle. You can die or be paralyzed or have some other serious injury that's going to cause you harm for the rest of your life. But you, but there's a difference between the Isle of Man risk and the risk that you're willing to take at a MotoGP race. And that's what I was trying to say to Gary is like, hey, look, they're completely different in my mind because there's this risk element. And if you have, you know, you're going out and doing this, MotoGP is being done as safely as you could possibly do it. It's not nanny state, right? But look, when bad things happen, and the, the thing is Barcelona, they immediately changed them into the Formula One chicane for the races, right? Nobody liked it, but they did it, right? Mm. They then went in there with a bulldozer and they moved some material, they moved some ground, they made some bigger runoff area. They improved it so that that should hopefully never happen again. So that's what that's how I took it. So yeah, which I'm sure we'll get more of that. <laughs> I mean, the TT is heinously dangerous, and they've done. I mean, but but compare the TT now to the TT 20 years ago. I mean. They've done a lot of safety improvement works to try and mitigate the consequences of the crash. But of course, at the same time, the bikes have got faster and faster over that same period sure. of time. So it kind of balances it out. I mean, Gary's perfectly entitled to, to, oh, yeah. to, to say that. I mean, it's a good point. I, I, take, I fully it take it on board. And yes, I mean, if we want to extol in the virtues of a prototype championship, then... And Alan, we know from the last subscriber call, is very, very much of this opinion that anything... Anything should go, right? If it makes it faster. Yeah. I agree. You know, the economics tend to creep into that argument, ultimately. And that's not what nearly finished the sport when the financial crash happened right. a few years back. I'll put this out there. It's a Formula One example. Mm -hmm. 1992 Williams FW14. That car was a fully automated car. It had active suspension. It had an automatic gearbox. It had anti-lock brakes. It had ABS. It had everything... Every driver aid imaginable for that race car. Yeah. They banned it because it just, it was like, it's too much. There's no driver in the car. Do you think the racing is worse because we don't have an actively suspended car? No. No. The racing's better because they cut to see cars sideways and you get to see, you know, again, the spectacle, right? You you don't care. As a Formula One fan, you don't care. I mean, look, okay, I admit the racing of the past decade has been boring, but that was 92, right? Mm -hmm. So from 92 to say, 2000 there was some great formula one racing in there because you didn't have all these electronics interfering with everything you didn't have you had to set up a car and make it an average and whatnot right so again that's sort of what's happening here i think in moto gp you're looking sort of at a equivalency of an actively suspended motorcycle okay yes you're using your thumb to tell the bike to go up and down and uh, okay fine but it's sort of on an equal basis you found a way to make a motorcycle go faster by changing its suspension its geometry well, that's fine and dandy, but it's a haves versus have-nots. I think we could at least, I think we could all agree that we don't like the aerodynamics on it because it's causing problems with passing. It's causing problems with front tires getting hot because and all of it's because you've now put more pressure on the front tire than what we've ever had before. And Michelin's going, I don't know what we're going to do. We're trying, we're working, we're just not there. They're behind. Remember long ago, you had that same problem, right? Where the tires got taken 
and to, to tear because they weren't as good as they could have been. And it took them ten, five or six years to even make the tires good enough again. And then when they did, everybody come in, well, there's no slide and there's no black piece and there's no whatever, right? But the bikes went faster, right? Because they got the grip. Same thing. We're, we're all in this, the tires on the front are going to get better. But I think what we're looking at is like, look, there's a lot of money being spent in this realm of development. And that's fine, but I don't think it's got any benefit at all to the average Joe motorcyclist on the, on, on the, on the street, unless you want to lower the rear end and drag race something, right? Yeah. Something like that. I still kind of reconcile in my mind, Jim, and I know we need to start thinking about wrapping this up, I guess, but oh yeah, we do. <laughs> I still kind of reconcile my mind that it is prototype in the sense that with the exception of things like standard ECUs and stuff like that, most of the parts on those bikes are bespoke. They are specially built for racing just for those bikes. I know there'd be commonality across forks and stuff like that, but you know, those bikes are exquisite works of art god only knows what they actually cost in the real world no the rules are not completely open i mean i wish they were but again the sport would go bank or the participants would go bankrupt or just withdraw probably fairly quickly because you'd be spending vast sums of money and not necessarily winning so there yeah. have to be checks and balances on that but at least what we've got the, the bikes are you know, they, you can't go down the local showroom and buy one. No. So, and every so often an aberration, what I consider an aberration, like the shapeshifter will come along. And I mean, I think it looks bad. It makes the bikes unnecessarily fast at a time when they probably need to be getting slowed down a little bit. And they do have the potential, as we've seen, to fail. So that does raise some genuine safety concerns, except in the argument around the TT and stuff. Fair point. But so I think just on that basis, I would like to see them gone. That's about as much as I've got to say on that one, really. And that's the last of the... I mean, I we, haven't is, yeah. we haven't read out every last bit of every email because otherwise we'd be here till tomorrow. But um, those are the listener feedback questions that we've been collating over the last little while. And as I say, we have we do, we do go back and forth with emails and keep the conversation alive when they come in. Just before we sign off, Jim, we didn't do it at the yes. front end, which we normally do, but there are two or three little bits of news snippets that we ought to just quickly touch on because uh, there's a couple of juicy ones in there. So okay. first one, which is caused Twitter to go swivel-eyed bonkers, is that Pekka Banyaya, uh, who's obviously on holiday at the moment as part of the five-week break, been holidaying in Ibiza, went to a nightclub the other night, jumped in his car, went off the road, got breathalyzed by the police and was over the legal limit for breath alcohol. I guess he would have had a blood alcohol done as well, but he was reasonably far over the limit. They sent out a fulsome apology uh, on social media, quite correctly. As I say, Twitter is tearing itself in all sorts of uh, shapes and knots <laughs> about with everything ranging from death penalties to, you know, nothing at all. I mean, I don't know. I don't really want to get into it too much here. There's a piece of These news. These guys need happened. to have a private life. What he did is not right. Okay. I'm not going to. Yeah. People make mistakes. You make a mistake, right? Everybody makes, I make mistakes. You make mistakes. We all make mistakes, right? You magnified his mistake because of the social media world and the social media outrage that we're going to have over yeah. it all. Okay. People make mistakes. You do. He has to deal with the consequences of it, right? Yeah. You shouldn't be able to get off because you're Peko Banyaya. You should have to do whatever it is, right? Yeah. I mean, things like, that's the one thing that I don't know that the FIM has so much as the FIA had, but the FIA had their road safety initiatives, right? Yes. So when you did something yeah. wrong, right, you had to go serve your penance by talking to the people of the road safety. And, you yeah. know, maybe something like that should be done to these guys. I too. totally agree, Jim. I think that would be a, a very sensible outcome. Clearly, he made a mistake. He shouldn't have done it. Of course, he shouldn't. Right. But he's a human being. You know, he's a, he's a young guy. You know, he's a MotoGP rider. He's just enjoying himself. Should he have got a taxi? Yeah, of course he should. But 
Sure, sure, Uber did, right? You know, that, that kind of thing can happen. He doesn't deserve, in my opinion, to lose his job over it. I mean, what's been quite interesting is that, well, certainly up until earlier today, <laughs> the last time I looked, there was nothing on the Dorna website to cover the news, which is right. a little bit disingenuous. And Ducati it's not, been... it's not good for the sport for them, right? It's no. the wrong kind of news, so they're going to be quiet about and it. And they could be taking it as an opportunity to do something positive around this whole issue. Know. You know, as you just said, Jim, and certainly the FIA are, are a shining example of the way forward on that one but mm-hmm. Ducati have not uh, have kind of had a blanket no comment over the last sort of 24 48 hours since this news came out which I think probably reflects quite badly on that and because it, uh, it is quite possible there are some things in his contract just going back to that hold that thought moment from an hour ago yeah which might say if you do these sorts of things you know your mm-hmm. job might be at risk now I'm not an advocate for him losing his job over this I think if he did it again that would be a different that would be a different question to answer that is a piece of news at the moment <laughs> there has been many a motorcycle who at motorcyclist who has been in throes of alcoholism i can name quite a few yeah so you know you gotta be smart so that was one thing the other one was a rather enticing and slightly beguiling tweet that came out from casey stoner that i saw yesterday please explain because i haven't seen this one yet Work's been hectic. Yeah, so. um, Casey Stoner tweeted yesterday with a picture of himself. So I've been feeling much better in the last few months. I'm having my first race suit measurement session for quite some time. Hmm. Hint, hint, he's going to be getting back on a bike. Now, I didn't say what bike he's going to be getting back on, uh, where he's going to be getting back on it, what bike it will be. Uh, you know, so, I mean, he's kind of left it out there as a, one of the all-time best teasers, I think you must say. But who knows? Wildcard hmm. come in at Phillip Island on an HRC bike? I don't think that will happen, but... Boy, you like to dream big. I was thinking he might go back to race Australian superbikes with Matt Malad. No, okay. Yeah. You're like, no, man, we're wild carding the kid and winning <laughs> on a Honda that nobody can win on. But Casey Stoner and Mark Marquez, wow. Yeah. You dream big. I love that about you, pal. So that came out, I think, yesterday, that tweet. And it's again, oh. it's got a lot of people excited and wondering what he's going to be doing. Um, hmm. So, and let's just be clear Casey Stoner was not a person that was ever, could ever have been accused of being a fan of the media. And encouraging, inviting scrutiny like this. So there must be something behind this. But as to what it is, people, we don't know yet. But, you know, the thought of him jumping back on a MotoGP bike, even if it's just for a one-off wildcard, you know, PA, for example, as I said, that would be quite a thing to see. Mm. And their star rider is out for the rest of the year, Jim. So, I mean, Mm. HRC could do with a bit of positive publicity just at the moment. Yes, they could. Uh, oh, d- did you mention Matt Maladin just a moment ago? I did. Yeah, the man you know whose name could not be uttered. Um, mm, he was acquitted yeah. of all charges. Yes, I he think, was. In the last week or two. So and now he claims he's been the victim of domestic violence. Right. Well, now the plot just thickens here. Yeah. yeah, anyway, we won't get into that. Well, but, yeah, uh, but, you know. I, that's his life, and I'm not getting there. Yeah. <laughs> um, just a couple of other quick ones. Um, Bautista. Uh, oh, Alvaro Bautista in World Superbike is re-signed with Ducati for 2023. So that rather suggests it's the put to him. bed the um, put to bed the rumours that Johnny Ray might be talking to Ducati about a, a switch across there next he's year. Going, he's staying at Kawasaki. Yeah, I think he's there for life. And yep. we've also learnt today that Peter Hickman 
uh, who rides in BSB, will be wild carding in the upcoming Donington World Superbike round. Uh, along Hopefully with, do well there. Yeah, I mean that's great for him. Uh, and this is rather unusual in recent seasons. We haven't seen wild cards because of the differences between the national regs around electronics, particularly BSB, where they yeah. don't run any electronic aid, um, and World Superbike, where they have you know the full gabit, full, full yeah, tilt, yeah, you know, the full gravy mm-hmm. there. So Taran McKenzie and I believe his teammate Jason O'Halloran, so both riders off that McCams Yamaha. BSB team are going to be wild carding, as is now Peter Hickman. And there has been some suggestions that Tom Sykes, who rides for the Ducati work squad in BSB, could be wild carding as well. But that's not confirmed, so that might might not happen. But hmm. good to see some oh, wild cards stuff. back in World Superbike yeah. again. Wild cards so, was always the fun part of Super World Superbikes is, man, the bikes were close to the National Series. You have guys that would just come out like, didn't, uh, oh, he just got engaged. What's his name? The, the Brit. What? What national? Uh... He's a Brit. He's the Brit. He just got engaged. Uh, Neil Hodgson. I blanked out. Oh, Hodgie. Was- yes. Hodgie. Yeah. Like Hodgie was like always on the always was a BSB guy. And then the, but the bikes were so similar. He'd show up at brands or whatever and run in the top three in podium in a world Superbike. And he was like, man, half the fun of world Superbike back in the day. Well, was, yeah, was the wild cards showing up and winning races. Right? He famously yeah. won the race at Donington in two thousand. Yeah, I think yeah. he did. Yeah, Francisco Kelly went a bit wide at Coppice. So I'll never forget it uh, on the last lap, and Hodgson and Walker on the Suzuki snuck yeah. through for a one two. Yeah, yeah. Happy days. <laughs> Happy days. Yes, go on. Yes. So the last thing to say, Jim, is that yes. uh, next show is number 700. 700. Now, it's going to land still in the barren patch in terms of racing going on, but we've been busy talking to ex-hosts and old friends of the show and talking to one or two people who are exciting in terms of uh, interviews. So it's going to be another big show with a lot of uh, contributors, let's say. So uh, I'll leave that one as a little teaser of ours, Not perhaps not on the Casey Stoner uh, level, but um, (laughs) that'll be probably out sometime in mid to end of July, I guess, just whilst we take advantage of the break in the races as well. So we got that one to look forward to in a week or two's time. Yeah, we do. All right. Well, I guess that's it for us. Yeah, uh, we're going to move across to the interview with Greg Haynes in a moment, but yep. um, and that will see the show out. But that's us done for now, Jim. So I'll let you do your little speech, and then we'll be out right, of here. Safe, everyone. Cheers. Hi, everyone. Rich here, recording this on the sixth of July, and I'm delighted to say that we have the let's call him the irrepressible and all around marvelous Gregory Haynes from Eurosport back on the show. First off, Greg, how are you? <laughs> irrepressible and all round marvelous. I had to get it in. I can't believe, Rich, that it is already July because we last spoke, you told me just before we started recording on the 4th of February. Correct. Where is 2022 going? But I'm all right, actually, thanks. Yeah, not too bad. I've got a bit of a suntan this year for once. How are you? You're looking very bronzed and and handsome as ever. (laughs) Well, maybe not bronzed as ever, but you're certainly looking quite uh, fit and healthy, which is good to see. No, sorry, I just hesitated there as well because the doorbell rang in the background, but that often happens when you're uh, in a block of apartments, people trying to get into post things downstairs. You're going to hear the church chiming in a couple of minutes as well. So, yeah, excuse any background noise. But, yeah, the weather's been all right, actually, here in Spain. It's a bit cloudy today as we record this. But it's been, yeah, it's been decent, so I'm definitely not complaining. Yeah, and you obviously, at the moment, you're in the little kind of uh, holiday period, let's call it, uh, before things really get kicking off again. So we thought we'd have this quick, it's not quite a mid-season chat, is it? Because we're only four rounds in, which when I was looking at the results, which we'll come to in a little while, I was like, wow, it feels like we've had, like, six or seven races so far there's been so much going on in terms of world superbike i'm talking about here so as you say greg we spoke on the 4th of feb which does feel like an awfully long time ago and that was a pre-season chat 
lot of anticipation and excitement back then heading into the season. And I think it would be fair to say we haven't been disappointed by the action so far in World Superbike. No, we haven't, have we? And people would say, oh, he would say that. But I said last year World Superbikes was the best motorcycle racing championship out there. And I think it's the same again this year, if I'm really, really honest with you. I agree, it's not yeah. always the case. It certainly wasn't always the case the last few years. And I'm sure there'll be seasons in the past when we have a cracking MotoGP season, BSB or anything else. But at the moment, I have to say, I do think World Superbikes is delivering probably more than anything else. And it has been unbelievable, hasn't it? And what I love about it, and we said this in that preseason chat, didn't we? You've got three riders for three different manufacturers, three different teams, totally different philosophies of motorbike. The riders' backgrounds have been through all sorts of different routes. They're from completely different places. And look how close they all are. Yeah. on the track different strengths in different places different weaknesses in different areas and it's brilliant and we still don't know we're like you say we're not even halfway through in fact we've only just gone past the one-third cutoff after Mizano and heading into Donington so much could still change and if you ask me to put money on it I genuinely could not tell you Toprak's had it a bit more difficult but I think he'll be stronger now all the motor GP talks out the way yeah it would feel as though Batista and Ray are the two strongest contenders at the moment but I, honestly, it could go any one of three ways, and it's brilliant that we don't know, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's just way too close to call. Now, with the way the Motopod is, it is very much kind of MotoGP-centric, although I've been mentioning the World Superbike races because there have been some absolute corkers this, this year. In <laughs> fact, I can't really think of a bad race that we've had this year, even including the sprint races, which yeah. I think I divide opinion a little bit in terms of that format. So I'm sure that the Motopod listeners, or a, a good degree of them at least, will have been watching World Superbike. Um, so this is an opportunity talking to you, Greg, and talking to Steve in terms of BSB and stuff, Steve Day. It's an opportunity to get some of the other race series into the show. So we really appreciate the fact that you're willing to give up some time and come in and give us your wisdom and your knowledge and so on. So four rounds down, eight to go. Is that right? I think it's eight to go. I was having a quick look on the calendar Yes, it is. On. 12 in total this year, yeah. As I said, it kind of feels like we've had a lot more racing than we actually have, but I've just kind of quickly tabled out the results. So I don't know, I don't want to sort of slavishly go through this because it will get a bit boring, but just I'm going to try and sort of scootle through this as quickly as possible. So round one, we were at Aragon. So we had race one, Johnny Ray won, Bautista was second and Toprak was third. Then in the sprint race, we had Bautista, Ray, and Rasgatioglu. And we're going to see a theme emerging here. <laughs> I'm actually counting this on my fingers as you go through yeah, okay. how many races they've been on the podium together. And then race, what they call race two, which is the third race of the season, which I, I still think is a bit yeah. of a silly way. Of right, it, it's stupid. If there's one thing that there's two things that need to change in terms yeah, of names. Let's, let's have that first. Come on. Yeah, I, I'll just get this off my chest. Race two is race three. I mean, it's utterly ridiculous. Yeah. Who calls the third race race two? I know it's the second long race, but it doesn't make sense. And Supersport 300 doesn't have a single 300cc bike in it. It should be the junior Supersport World Championship. Anyway, sorry. Carry yeah. on. No, no, fine. We, we love a good rant on this show. Uh, Jim <laughs> and I do it frequently, so don't worry. So, yes, let's stick with the format. So race two, the second of the long races of the weekend in Aragon was uh, Bautista, Ray and Razgatioglu. So round one, three guys, as we were just saying, yeah. dominating the podium. I didn't watch the races back because obviously just time doesn't always allow you to do these sorts of things. But moving on to Aston, again, I'm just going to read this. as race one, sprint race and race two now. So we had Ray, Bautista, Razgatioglu. Ray, Razgatioglu, Bautista. <laughs> and then interestingly, in the second long race, 
Bautista, Locatelli and Lecarona. Now, this is the famous race where yes. ran into turn one. Top rack went a little bit wide, but only sort of up onto the curb. He didn't go off the track, Greg, did he? And Johnny kind of tried to nip through on the inside and bang, they kind of hit each other and took each other out. So that was, I suppose, the first big talking point of the season. Yes, and we'll keep totaling this up because you've gone through six races so far and that's only one in which they haven't all been on the podium together, the top Correct. three yeah. up to Aston. Yeah, as we record this, I was chatting yesterday with Alvaro Bautista for an interview that's going to go out in Motorcycle News post-Donnington. It was more a generic interview for the season so far yeah. as opposed to a Donnington preview. But I did have to ask him towards the end of the interview. I said, Alvaro, in the commentary, I was kind of half joking, but I said, Bautista must be laughing all the way to the flag here. Now you know they're both okay. Well, you're not, you know, riding around with a bit of a wry smile on your face, but you couldn't believe it, could you? Because, of course, it happened right in front of him. Yeah. And he, he said, to be honest, yeah, I'm glad they're okay. But, yeah, I mean, he said it definitely made my life easier on that afternoon. And in the championship, a lot of people have talked about who was to blame. Lots of people like to ascribe blame. But I have to say, if anyone's to blame in that particular one, it was more Jonathan Ray than Toprat Razgatioglu, in my opinion. And I'm not a racer, but that's based on listening to the opinions of lots of other races, notably James Tozen, James Whittam, and people that I work with at Eurosport. Because like you said, Rich, Toprak didn't go off the track. He was on the curb, but he was not outside the boundaries of the track. Okay, he was over the white line, but the curbs are classed as part of the track. Yeah. And um, I think Ray tried to just, you know, rough him up. I get it. I totally understand why Jonathan would do that. He didn't mean to cause a collision because he had just as much to lose, didn't he? Um, yeah. But I think he could have given him a little bit more space. Obviously, it all happened in the blink of an eye, let's not forget. But it's not like Top Rat came straight back across the track, Super Sport 300 style, like some of the kids do there. He came back on. He had to come back on somewhere. He couldn't evaporate or, or disappear up onto the runoff area. It is mm. a race. And I think Jonathan just thought, I'm going to pass him really close, rough him up. And they met in the middle and bang, down they go. It was an incredible TV moment because we witnessed it happening live on board with Jonathan Ray, didn't we? And unfortunately, the track cameras didn't capture that one brilliantly. Rare occasion, they kind of missed it. I was going to say, actually, because as you say, Greg, the, you kind of got the main straight camera view and you saw Top yeah. Rack doing what Top Rack always does, which is going into the turn, looking like he's yes. not going to make the turn. And yeah. I just wondered, what, and then it kind of cut away to the onboard, as you say, and you didn't really quite see it in full detail what had happened. But I, from yeah. my sort of comfy armchair enthusiast point of view, I kind of just had the idea that perhaps Jonathan thought Top Rat was actually this time going off the track fully. Loads of runoff yeah. there, fair enough. And, and as you say, just didn't perhaps consider that he was going to do his usual thing and get it back on track. Quite yeah, I definitely, I mean, let, let me just clarify, because I don't want anyone to think I'm slamming Jonathan Ray there, because I'm really not. I, he didn't do it on purpose. Top no, right not it. it was a racing incident, really. I mean, if ever you wanted a racing incident, it was that one. It was a shame, really, in some ways. It's great we saw Locatelli on the podium. It's great we saw the Honda with Laquona on the podium and briefly led for half a lap as well. It was a shame in some ways for the championship, but it was a, it was brilliant for World Superbikes on a whole because it got everyone talking. And that's yeah. the sort of thing that does get everyone talking. So will they take each other out again? You wouldn't be surprised, would you? But you do also have to think the law of averages says Batista will hit trouble at some point. He'll mm. crash. He'll have a problem. The problem with that is, in Toprak's case in particular, it does put the pressure on them now because if they do that again, they really are giving him a big gap then. And that's the problem. They didn't help each other, did they? At the end of the day, Batista Ducati is the stronger package at this point. Could change, but that's the case at the moment. And they really didn't help each other by doing that. Not only gave them 25 points, but if you swing the horse, let's just say Beast should finish third in that race. And there's every chance he would have won it anyway. But let's just say for the sake of the argument, he would have been third. 
the swing there. They've not only gifted him points, but they've lost points themselves. Big, big drama, that one. Yeah, and championships are decided on such things, aren't they? I mean, it's it's a matter of yeah. uh, constant astonishment to me, actually, that uh, particularly with Johnny Ray and Toprak, that they don't collide with each other and take each other out or go down one or the other more often. Because, I mean, God, do they take lumps out of each other. Oh, it really is hard gladiatorial stuff, isn't it? I mean, it is. We watch on the telly and get all excited about it. But if you actually think, you know, remember Portimao last year when Toprak came underneath Jonathan in the left-hander at the top of the hill and just literally smashed him out of the way. And imagine what that must feel like um, (laughs) at speeds like that. And I also heard, and and it was actually then confirmed, I mentioned it on the telly some months back now. I think it might have been Aragon. I can't quite remember. And then Paul Denny confirmed it recently in an interview I saw. That Toprak's mudguard failure in the last race at Portimao may well have been caused by a hairline fracture inside that mudguard from that collision with Jonathan Ray. And I remember at the time, I speculated in the commentary, and Scott Redding, I remember, said the same thing. Could that have happened because he keeps smashing into people and it's weakened something? Mm. And it seems like it actually did. So in some ways, Toprak was the master of his own demise, though. It was obviously unlucky that mudguard came off in a corner and went under the front wheel. Had it happened on the straight, he probably would have got away with it. But, but yeah, back to your point, they really don't give each other any space. But we've got to remember, Jonathan Ray is just as hard as Top Rat. We've had some very aggressive moves from Jonathan over the years. So even on his own teammate, Tom Tykes, I remember quite clearly, he sat him up in Qatar in 2015. Jonathan knows that. Jonathan's probably the smartest guy out there. I still personally think Jonathan is the most complete package as a rider. That's my personal opinion. Yeah. And he's very, very smart and always has been. And he's now more experienced than he ever has been and probably riding better than he ever has done. Again, he still just gets better, doesn't he? The very sort of definition of a smiling assassin, isn't he, really? Yeah. It's interesting, the mental struggles we've seen, you know, 2019, Bautista was in a position he hadn't been in before. Once he started crashing, he kept crashing. Last year, Jonathan Ray kept crashing. And you could tell at Portimao, you know, he was actually in tears after crashing out of that sprint race. Uh, that really got to him. And I think it got to top right this year with the pressure of MotoGP and knowing I'm reigning world champion. He'd never been in that position before. I don't think we should underestimate the psychological side of this. And that's really fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and that rivalry this year has amped up from last year because they know what to expect of each other, I suppose. So that kind of you know just ups <laughs> the level of pressure even more, doesn't it? And that desire, yeah. to, from Johnny's point of view, to get that number one plate back. Yeah. Just moving on to Estoril, which was another stunner. And I'm hoping that the Motopod listeners who haven't watched some of these races will take from this. They need to find a way to go and look at some highlights because you can get it on YouTube and stuff, I think, you know, reasonably soon after the race weekends have completed. Yeah. So Estoril, round one was Bautista, <laughs> Razgatioglu and Ray. The theme continues. Sprint race was Ray, Razgatioglu and Bautista. And then I'm trying to remember which race it was, Greg, and you will remember one of these i'll just do the second long race race to ray bautista and Rascatioglu again so yeah was it the sprint the morning sprint race on the sunday morning when the famous top rack front end save happened and jonathan nipped by him yeah it was i i think for overall racing so far this year esteril's probably the best of all four we've had so far what i loved about that weekend is three races and three head-to-heads each of them had a turn of fighting with one another so it was Bautista versus Toprak in the first race on the Saturday, I seem to remember. Ray Toprak in the sprint race. And like you say, that was Toprak's amazing save and he loses the win. Sort of wet, dry conditions. Yeah, exactly. First race, he'd been picked to the line out of the last corner by Bautista. So Toprak could have easily won two of those races there. And then the last race, of course, was Ray versus Bautista. So the other two fighting with each other, which I really enjoyed that last corner. That last sector and last corner from Jonathan Ray, he was sideways and he knew he had to do that because otherwise the Ducati would have come through on the line. 
unbelievable. And that's why I still think Ray is the best package out there. I think he's making best use of his package. Not that the other two aren't, but, you know, they say the greats win races they shouldn't win. And probably he shouldn't have won that one, mm. uh, but he did. And he's done it so many times over the years. Whereas Toprak, for example, that weekend lost two races he should have won. And that's the difference, I think, so far this year. But yeah, again, you've got to the end of Estoril then, and that's nine races. And only one so far in Assen when those three haven't locked out the podium. I know, it's unbelievable. A uh, quick tangential question, actually, that has just sprung to my mind. You're a man yeah. who knows his racetrack history and sort of Formula Things One got. going back a little bit. Do you remember the, the Estoril track before that a chicane was introduced? Yes. They used to carry on up the hill and there was quite a sharp right turn, but quick. And there was a barrier there and they couldn't move it back. So that's yeah. why that chicane. Ca- Which configuration of the track would you prefer to see him race on if you had the choice? Ooh, I, I guess... Because the current one, what I do, I mean, I, don't, I wasn't watching at the time, but I've obviously watched it since on lots of videos. In 93, there was complete carnage there in World Superbikes because of that chicane. And everyone said it was really Mickey Mouse. Uh, and there was just, if you look back at the footage, there was just bikes everywhere. I suppose as a natural track, you'd have to say the previous configuration, but I don't think they'd probably get away with it with safety, would they? They'd probably say a bit like the end of the lap at Barcelona and other places like that, where they've had to change over the years. It's like original Monza without the chicanes, Hockenheim without the chicanes. It would be unbelievable, but they just, I don't think they'd get homologated these days, yeah. not for bikes anyway. I've got a sort of a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde sort of opinion on this one, because I don't like that chicane. I think it's far too, or, well, it's almost like a hairpin chicane, isn't it? Oh, it's, uh, it's pedestrian. I have to say, commentating, I quite enjoy it because there's always drama. I'm not saying I want there to be a crash. There's always, something's always going to happen there. But yeah, they're almost stationary, aren't they? They have to pick it up. They're almost stopped in the middle of there. Yeah, you, that was kind of really where I'm coming at from it. So I don't really like the turn. But in terms of bike racing, it does create a lot of jeopardy down there. And, and I, that's obviously what we saw with Toprak, wasn't it? In the yeah. sprint race on the Sunday morning this year. And even Mark Marquez praised that one. Yes. Because <laughs> I, I remember saying to James at the time, I said, was the fact it was uphill, did it help him pick it up? And, and Marquez, I remember, said after, that would have made it even more difficult. The fact it was uphill would have made, I mean, the strength required. These things are a minimum 168 kilos, I think it is. I mean, they are so fit, these guys. I remember interviewing Toprak at the Aragon test back in uh, March or April. And I remember thinking, crikey, you are in good shape. And every year you see them, they're in even better shape. It's, it's crazy how mm. the level they, they're up to. I know you don't really sort of use Twitter and stuff, Greg, but uh, Toprak's been, or over the time I've been using it, he has posted quite a bit, but recently he's been posting quite a lot of his training session videos. Yeah. And he does some really bizarre kind of weights and balancing tricks. So you, so you can quite obviously see how he kind of trains his brain and his muscles to yeah. handle kind of off kilter off-balance yeah. situations. Yesterday, I saw him sort of hovering on four stacks of dumbbells, which are end-on-end, and he's about sort of six feet in the air, <laughs> balancing on these things. God only knows what would happen if he would, if it fell to pieces and he fell down. But yeah. He's a real gymnast, actually, a bit like Mark Marquez as well. They're very flexible. They do all sort of whatever they need to do with their body. They could probably be a good escape artist, couldn't they? Yeah, true, yeah. A bit of a Houdini. Well, indeed, he is an escape artist quite often, isn't he? If you think about what he's doing with the bike, saving it. This is the thing you see, and this is what other riders, I think, sometimes struggle with. When he's taking lumps out of people, he says, okay, yes. He says, I like my style. I'm never going to change it. I like watching it back. It's very fun. And others, you know, Reading in particular has been very vocal about him in the past, and Jonathan, but more so Reading. Yeah. Scott Redding. Uh, but Toprek said, how many times have I actually crashed into somebody and taken them out of a race? And he says, I'm not saying it'll never happen because it's racing. It could. Mm. But it's, it still hasn't happened. I mean, Ray would argue that it happened at Assen. But how many times have you seen Toprak attempt to pass someone, get it wrong and take them out? It's never actually happened. He's the most in control, out of control rider I've ever seen. Yeah. 
Kenny Roberts came over in the late 70s, the Indy Mile dirt track style, and everyone else had to try if they could and copy it. Obviously, other Americans came over and brought it with them. But the fact of the matter was the establishment, Barry Sheen and Hartog and Coke, they couldn't cope with it at the time. That is the truth. Mm. And I think even Barry Sheen knew that. You know, Nick Harris, my good friend and old commentary partner at Dorna on the MotoGP World Feed, he knew Barry. I remember having conversations about it. He said Barry knew. He said Barry would admit Kenny's doing a better job. And he brought in this new style. And they all bring something down. Every 10, 15 years, someone special comes along. And top route with this hard front end braking. So much show. Kawasaki and show are about to go back and develop some new front forks this year to allow Jonathan Ray to do the same thing. Yeah. And that's what's brilliant. And, and that is great, isn't it? If you can't beat him, join him in a way. But that's how racing's always been. Yeah. Moving on to Mizano. Which, yeah. I mean, wasn't the best weekend of the season so far. No, it was all right, wasn't it? It wasn't scintillating racing, but it was entertaining enough. But yeah, it wasn't the best. Race one, Bautista Ray Rinaldi this time, putting in a rare yeah. appearance and a much needed one from his point of view, which we might come yeah. to in a minute. Sprint yeah. race was Razgatti, Oglu, Bautista and Ray. So first win of the season for top rack at long last in the sprint race. Yeah. And then second race on Sunday, long race, Bautista, bringing it home for Chikatia at home again. Razgatti, Oglu. And Ronaldo again. So I'm trying to think, I think Ray just went a little bit the wrong way on tyres, perhaps, or the conditions were yeah. just really hot, wasn't it? Yeah, they struggled, didn't they, there? And that also means, and just to complete it, that's 12 races so far, and that's nine the top three in the championship have locked out the podium. Only three they haven't. It's incredible stuff, isn't it? Looking at the championship then, Greg, you've got Bautista on 220, who's been, I mean, he's been fearsomely consistent, hasn't he? And we haven't yet seen, and hopefully we won't see, the sort of the collapse of form <laughs> that we saw a few years ago. Yeah. Johnny Ray's 36 back on 184, so they're close-ish. But as you say, Ray really suffering from that non-finish in Assen. I think that yeah. really cost him, didn't it? And then, yeah. quite surprisingly, actually, Raz Gattioglu, bearing in mind he's been finishing sort of second and mostly third most of the season, 141 points, so he's 79 back on Bautista. And that's quite a big gap, isn't it? I mean, is that insurmountable, do you think? Uh, no, I don't think it is, because like we've already said, it's a perfectly reasonable question, obviously, and one we've got to ask. Um, we're only a third of the way through, so there's a long way still to go. Even my basic maths tell me that means there are still double the amount of points remaining that yeah. have already been given out. That is a lot of points. You don't know what's going to happen with problems, crashes, weather conditions, tyre choices. So many things can still and will still go wrong for people. But he's been quite unlucky, I think. I think the pressure of the MotoGP tour got to him. I think Toprak is an unbelievable natural talent, but he's still inexperienced in that sense. He, yeah. You know, remember Mark Marquez in Aragon? Like you said, I know a lot of MotoGP people listen to this. So remember Marquez in Aragon, 2014. He was already world champion. He was well on the way to his second. He dominated that season, won many races at the beginning of the year. But he crashed because he stayed out on slick tyres, if you remember, and he crashed at turn two in the rain. Yeah, I remember. And he said after, I, I was inexperienced. That's the first flag to flag I'd ever done that I'd gone from dry to wet. I think he'd done a wet to dry, but he hadn't done a dry to wet. And Toprat was inexperienced this year in the sense that he's never been world champion. The whole world is talking about you. The MotoGP paddock, the World Superbike paddock, everywhere. This guy's good. He may well be. He should soon be in MotoGP. We'll never know what that feels like. No. <laughs> We've never experienced that before. So I'm sure that was part of it. Estorini was unlucky, though. He had a wheelie out the last corner and Batista's horsepower advantage took him past. It's not just that, though. I do think Batista's doing a brilliant job as well. There is no doubt about it. Look at him in comparison to the other Ducati riders. But then Toprak could have easily won that race. He could have easily won the sprint race, but he had the moment at the chicane. He threw it away. Again, yeah. that was partly due to Ray keeping the pressure on. So it wasn't just the fact Toprak made a mistake. Jonathan won it as well by keeping close. 
But that was two wins he could have easily had. He also had the alternator failure again, like Barcelona last year. Remember in Mazzano this year? Yeah. And pulled out of one of those races. So that was more points down the drain. So he would be a lot closer, certainly, to Jonathan Ray had those things not happened. I'd forgotten about the non-finish and race one at Mizano, actually. Yeah, so he pulled off. It was race one, wasn't it? It was race one. Yeah, I was trying to remember which race it was. Yeah. And he was third, wasn't he, at the time? Yeah. I believe. Yes, he was. So that's another 16 points gone. So if you actually look at all these things, I know they're ifs. They did happen. So we can't say if they hadn't because they did happen. But it's not as bad as it looks. The fact of the matter is, though, he's got work to do now and he's coming from behind. Although in some ways, Rich, I think it kind of takes some of the pressure off him now. The MotoGP thing isn't happening, certainly not next year. So that's gone. There's no distraction there. He's just got to ride for race wins, hasn't he? And if the championship does come, it's a bonus. And I'm yeah. sure that's the way Toprak's thinking now as well. And I guess probably his mentality and the way he goes about his business, he probably would quite prefer to chase rather than be chased. Yeah. Anyway. Because I often think, I think actually, so. I'd be interested in your sort of wisdom on this, but... I often think it's perhaps a bit of a misnomer when people say when you win a championship, the pressure's off. Because it's a little bit like the difficult second album in music, isn't it? You, you know, you now yeah. I think the pressure actually possibly even ramps up because you don't want to be the guy or the girl that loses the championship at the first defence. Yeah. You kind of forget about this with these guys because they've been racing for so many years. But as you say, it's the first time he's been champion. So it must be a high pressure thing. It's funny you mentioned the second album as well, because just last night I was watching an interview on YouTube with George Harrison from 1990 about the traveling Wilburys. Right. You know, that, that amazing collection. It was Harrison, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty. I'm really going off on a tangent here. Uh, Jeff Lynn from ELO. And who's the other one I'm missing? Uh, Roy Orbison, of course, the late Roy Orbison. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Uh, and they put together the traveling Wilburys. And it was very much an accidental thing. If you watch it, it's an amazing story and some brilliant songs. Uh, but their second album, we were saying pretty much the same thing. You've just said, which for some reason they called volume three, just to confuse everyone. <laughs> But anyway, I completely got off on a tangent there. I completely agree. Second season is always more difficult, whether it's your second season competing as a rider or a team or defend. They do say, don't they, defending a title is more difficult than winning one. And if you look back over the years, there's actually not been many world superbike riders who've actually defended a title. There's been many multiple world champions, Mm. but not many back-to-back champions. And there's been many, who've, you know, like I say, multiple champions who've come back to win it again, but didn't defend a title. There's not been many. I agree. It's been far more difficult from that point of view. I think the Yamaha has improved. There is no doubt about it. And the Kawasaki. In fact, I think every bike has improved. The BM, the Honda, everything. Yeah. It's just the fact you've got Bautista on that Ducati. And every now and again, you get a perfect match, don't you? You can get a great rider on a good bike and they'll win. You could get a great rider... Uh, sorry, you could get a great bike with a decent rider and they may well be winning or finishing on the podium. But every now and again, you get a marriage made in heaven. Because let's just remember, in Alvaro Bautista's defence, and he said this when I spoke with him yesterday, in 2019, he said, everybody was saying I'm winning because of the bike. And he also said, a lot of people are saying the same thing this year. But he said, in my defence, the Kawasaki has been designed and built around Jonathan Ray. Mm-hmm. The same goes for the Yamaha with Topper at Razgatioglu. Yes, Bautista's ridden the Ducati before, but he's been off it for two years. I've been developing it without him. Yeah. So you can't tell people that it's not to do with Bautista as well, can you? No, not at all. Look at his teammate. I mean, direct comparison. And it is a direct comparison, actually, because in fact, if anything, it should favour Ronaldo a little bit more because he's been on the bike for longer, hasn't he, in terms of what's this, his second or third season on the Ducati. Just sort of recapping back to when we put the 4th of Feb uh, interview out, you might recall, Greg, that you very kindly did a, an additional kind of 10-minute thing from your car after yeah. you'd been to the Estoril... No, not Estoril. Was it Estoril Port or Portimao? 
49. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember. I do remember because I paid astronomical prices on the fuel because for some reason, apparently Portugal is the most expensive petrol in Europe anyway, even at the best of times, tax. Um, and obviously now with the way things are now is even worse. So yeah, I do remember quite clearly, yeah. I just think you remember you saying on the back of been out observing at the track that Bautista and Ronaldo is very similar sized guys physically in height and so on. And that it was kind of looking like a match made in heaven and that they were going to be devastating yeah. or he was uh, certainly. Yeah. So your prediction has certainly proven to be true. Well, that's good. Thanks for that, Rich. I'm glad, yeah, I like it when, when you point out some smoke like up your ass, yeah. You can't, yeah. <laughs> But you can't always get it right. I definitely don't always get it right. But yeah, I remember and the one that really struck me was Mizano testing just after that Portimao one. I went trackside. I was fortunate enough to go trackside with Chas Davis. And we went around on the scooter and he took me on the back. And we, we stood in the middle of the infield. I'd never been there before uh, on this part of the track. Between the last corner at Mizano and Cavoni, there's only a tiny bit of space there between the two of them. Yeah. And then we went down to the hairpin. And Bautista, who was on the SEX tyre, and he put in about probably a full sprint race worth eight, nine, ten laps. And every single time, it was like he was on a scale. Extra track, Rich, it was unbelievable. Like normally the riders come around and it, there's a little, you know, movement on one lap that wasn't on another lap. Something's a bit different. Every time the way he was braking, tipping in, mid-corner, corner exit, he'd pick it up. To use a Jack Burnicle phrase, he'd pour the air with the front wheel, the front tyre, okay. in exactly the same spot, coming out of that Caro hairpin into the left at the penultimate corner, every single time. And I thought, wow. And Chaz was surprised. And bearing in mind, Chaz knows that bike really well. Mm. And all the other, you could tell in the paddock after everyone was saying, oh, did you, hit, did you see about that run Bautista did? And it was like, crikey, this is, I mean, it was only a nine lap run and the normal races are 20, 22 laps. But yeah, it's impressive. I mean, it's, really it's entirely, impressive. entirely the wrong word to use, but Bautista is kind of look, making it look quite effortless, isn't he? It's certainly in oh, comparison to Ray and, yeah. and Razgatioglu anyway, in terms of the shapes they're yeah, making. Definitely. And he's been smart. You can only... You know, you've got to ride the bike you've got. And he's very experienced now. He's 37 years old. He's not won a title since his 2006 title in the 125cc class. He's never won a big bike title, actually. Yeah. And he desperately wants to. He's re-signed as well. Let's not forget that. That throws a cat amongst the pigeons in some ways with the rider market. But mm. maybe we'll talk about that in a bit. He's just so confident. He's enjoying life. He's got his wife, Grace. He's got Gina and Minnie Grace, his two daughters. He's loving life at home. He goes home and he enjoys his home life. He goes away, he enjoys his work slash passion. Same thing for him. And he's just in a great place. And I don't believe as well, he's just benefiting from a straight line speed advantage. Even in 2019, the run he was getting off that last corner in Australia, it was so much better than anybody else. And then that combined with the straight line speed advantage mm. made him look, and well, didn't make him look superior. He was superior. He's getting everything out of the package and it's a brilliant package and he is in a good place and he's learned from 2019. Yeah. You have to think there'll be a few problems along the way. I would be surprised if he starts crashing constantly like he did before. It's not going to be easy, but there's two thirds to go. There's a long way to go. I think Donington, the next round, is going to be a big test because Ducati struggled there big time over the last few years. If they go well this year, or certainly if Batista goes well this year, Let's say three podiums or even three fourth places. I think it's settled with that, to be honest with you. Yeah. And that then is ominous for everybody else. And that is also why Jonathan Ray, I think in particular, and Toprak, they've got to capitalise there. They can't afford, you know, Ray can't afford three seconds or, or a collision. They've got to be smart. Not that they're not normally smart, but that's where they're going to take some points out of him. 
Uh, and then they've got to just hope he hits some kind of trouble, haven't they? Like you say, Greg, Happy Rider's a fast rider. So yeah, it does yeah. look a different kettle of fish with Bautista this year as compared yeah. with the last time he was on the Duke when it all kind of fell to pieces, didn't it? So Yeah, I think when they're in good flow as well, it just... It's like life in general, isn't it? You know, when you're having a good day. Yeah. Do you know when you're having a good day and good things just keep happening? And they say it never rains, but it pours. If you get out of bed on the wrong side and something negative happens in the morning, that trend tends to carry on, doesn't it, for the whole day then? And you're in a negative mindset. It happens to all of us. Bautista, he's kind of reminded me a little bit of Quattraro in a way over in the MotoGP paddock, you know, just really fast and consistent. Okay, I know Quattraro had an incident at Aston last time out, but that was Quattraro's first crash, I think, in 27 races or something, some crazy stat like that. Yeah, so yeah, just rounding out the bottom part of the top six in the championship then. So you got, um, I mentioned uh, Toprak was on seven, uh, sorry, 141. You then have Locatelli, who's again been sort of there and thereabouts, but just not featuring for the most part on the podium. Lacuona, I think, doing a superb job on the Honda. And then Ronaldi, I think, probably, to be fair, somewhat underperforming on the other Ducati. Yeah. So, but those three are really quite close. I mean, uh, Locatelli won 112 points behind, Lecarona 121 behind, and Ronaldi 128. So that battle for fourth spot, which, let's face it, nobody's really going to be too interested in <laughs> battling for fourth, but it is a tight competition between them at the moment. Having sort of set the world to rights in terms of what's happened in the first four rounds, the brilliance of the top three and where the championship position is. I've got to ask you, and I know this is something you wanted to mention as well, Scott Redding and BMW, question mark slash discuss. <laughs> That's like one of those exam questions, you yeah. school, isn't it? Discuss. I mean, where do you start? What did Scott have to say? Because I know you've interviewed him recently. Yeah. I know you don't want to give too much of that away, because obviously you've got to keep that for your, your MCN. But <laughs> That's right. what's the general feeling? The general feeling is, I would say this, I think Scott, in my opinion at least, I think he's still the darling of the crowds. If you had to say, it's a very contentious point here probably, if you had to say who's the most popular rider in World Superbike, you'd have to put Scott Ridding near the top of that list, wouldn't you? Certainly in Britain anyway. Yeah. Obviously, if you asked, if you went into Istanbul and asked people, I'm sure you'd get a different opinion or, or Madrid. But, but anyway, from that point of view, I, I think he's a tremendous ambassador for our sport, I really do, for motorcycle racing generally. When he was in MotoGP, BSB was fantastic, wasn't he? Yeah. He was brilliant for BSB. He was one of the best things that's hit BSB for a long time. And, I, and I've always agreed with Stuart Higgs, actually, in the sense that BSB was great for Reading as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. But the mood, to answer your question, Rich, I think the mood's all right now. Scott has said to me in that interview, he said as a lot of us speculated at the time, but I don't think anybody dared say it, but he's even said it himself now. He said, at Aragon, it was horrendous. It was horrific. He said, I really wasn't enjoying it. I really didn't see myself getting through to the end of the season. And I remember people in the paddock were already saying it there, but he said it himself now. Mm. And it was just, it was awful, wasn't it? I mean, they've had... I mean, he was seconds a lap slower, wasn't he, at one point? Oh, he was down in like 16th, 17th position, wasn't he? And, mm. then, and then he had to retire from the last race while he was off the pace and down the back. Let's just remember, this is a man who was fighting the previous two years for race wins on a consistent basis and the championship. He went into the last round of his first season with a chance of winning the championship. 21 got away from him, but he wasn't too far behind, relatively speaking, for winning the championship, even though he ended up third, not second that time. And then 16th place in the first races of the year with not a chance. I mean, it, it, was, it was sad to see, wasn't it? Now the mood's better. He said, from Aston onwards, he said, BMW's believing in me. And I do think there is a sense that BMW are quite set in their ways on certain things and they've got to start listening to their riders. Certainly Reading, with Vandermark now injured and out for some time, who knows when he's going to be back. 
if he's even back this year or ever, because that's a really badly broken leg he's got there. I think he will be back, but that's not, you can't rush that one. Mm. And he wouldn't want to rush it. He's had a, a big warning now, hasn't he, coming back? Mm. Yeah, he came back too soon anyway. I don't think Michael Vandermark would have come back had it not been Assen. And then obviously he got hurt again in Estoril. Anyway, I think Reading's accepted the situation. And I think I, I felt this in Italy at Mazzano. Now he knows what he's dealing with. He knew he was never going to be winning races or podiums immediately, but he did think he was going to be in the top five or top six. So when he was 16, you can only imagine the mood, can't you? You know, completely disheartening. But I think BMW's listening now. I do still keep hearing things. Scott wouldn't allude to this but i've heard in the paddock that they've been trying out different clutches but they're insisting on using their in-house version which they do also with their electronics it's a bosch system but it's very much um, designing collaboration with bmw themselves and i think that's been frustrating the riders like reading because he's thinking if you just put this so-and-so clutch on we'd make better starts the bmw starts have been really quite poor this year all of them across the board reading mm-hmm. vandermark michael chick laverty and baz but I do think they're listening to him now. And he said, we've got some new parts coming. You couldn't quite say what they were or when they're coming exactly. But I think it's some engine updates. He said some internal stuff. So I think he means engine, electronics as well. And that'll come, I guess, across. I don't know whether it's as early as Donington or just after at Moss, but all around that time. And he said, if they listen to me, we can make it. And I said to Reading in the interview, I said, without sounding like I'm disrespecting BMW here, you've been winning races regularly and podiums the last couple of years and they haven't been that's the truth of the matter so surely they must know you can do it but i do think at first that he was getting and he said this all on the record you know scott doesn't know the bike he's got to get used to it well i think he does now and they're starting to listen to him and he feels like it's his bike and he can push it so i think he feels quite relaxed and calm i think the mood now will depend on whether the new parts work and whether he feels bmw are taking on board his feedback if they don't you're going to see an upset, I think. He's mm-hmm. on a two-year contract until the end of next year. If they do listen to him, you should, I think, see some progress. But they do need to listen to their rider because he is a world-class rider. Whether he's on the same level as Batista, Rain, Razgatioglu, is down to opinion. You know, who's the best out of those four? Well, he was last year. You know, he's one of the four aliens. Yeah. And they're going to have to listen to him, aren't they? And give him what he needs to win. He said, he said to me, he said, I'm not here for a paycheck. Because a lot of people, including myself, I will admit, said he's gone there for the money. In some ways, I don't think he had many other options with the way it all went wrong with Ducati. But his words were, I'm not here for a paycheck. I'm here to expletive win. Mm. (laughs) It was a great line. I think now he's, he's calm and he's accepted the situation. But let's be honest. The beginning of the season was a disaster. He wasn't happy and he would have felt like leaving, but he's had to get his head down. And he, he also said, Rich, I'm working harder now developing this bike than any bike ever. So they're working bloody, bloody hard, but they are going to have to collaborate well with one another and listen properly because otherwise it won't work. When you're up against Ray with Kawasaki, Batista with Ducati and Razgatioglu with Yamaha, you've got to work together. Otherwise you might as well go home. Yeah, only the A game will do. Yeah. I've just got a little feeling in the water that he's going to have a good round at Donington. I hope he does. I really hope he does. Because as much as anything, because the championship really needs BMW to be competitive at the front. And come yeah. to that, BMW need to be competitive at the front to satisfy their own board because they're obviously spending quite a lot of money. Yes. And we don't want to have a kind of a Suzuki situation like we've seen in MotoGP where for whatever reason, economically and or, or management lose trust or faith or just zone out. The health yeah. of the series is very much dependent on manufacturer input, isn't it? So, Absolutely. And we've seen this before. They've had they've had dalliances with Grand Prix racing in motorbikes. They were in Formula One yeah. with Brabham in the early 80s as the engine supplier. Then they pulled out. 
Then they came back in 2000 with Williams. Yeah. Williams BMW, if you remember, with Jensen Button and Ralph Schumacher and Montoya and co. And then they pulled out after five years, six years. And then they came back as a, well, they pulled out of Williams and then they ran their own team. They took Sauber on and they ran their own team and they were leading the F1 championship with Robert Kubica. They decided in 2008 to focus on the next year's car for the new regulations. That backfired spectacularly. And sure enough, worldwide credit crunch comes at the end of 09. What have they done? They've pulled out again. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. You know, Kawasaki, I think you'd be more surprised because Superbike is their thing. BMW needs results. And it was nice, actually. I did an event recently at Ragley Hall in Warwickshire with Ducati. And we had the stage there at the Adventure Bike Rider Festival. Mm-hmm. And it was nice talking to the guys from Ducati UK, because although it's not quite so much win on Sunday, sell on Monday as it used to be, it is still very important. And I was pleased to hear that because... You know, you hear about sports bikes aren't selling quite so well these days and clearly they're not in comparison with what they used to, but it's still mightily important. And they were all over the fact, for example, that Ducati are on 998 World Superbike podiums. They're two away from 1,000. And they're also aware of the fact that Kawasaki's on 499, one away from their 500. These things still matter to these manufacturers. And this is what will go up in their showrooms, on their adverts. Like you say, it's really important. So yeah, they have got to deliver and there's pressure there and Mark Bongers and Sean Muir and everybody at SMR and BMW to go back to the board. Because if the results aren't coming in, a man in a suit back in Munich or Stuttgart is going to say, Mark, what's the problem? Why should I keep throwing X million euros at this? Where's the results? So, yeah, they've Just got make to it go together. faster. <laughs> you know, yeah, and it sounds a bit, we're dumbing it down to an extent, but it is that simple, really. But it is definitely the case. I mean, if you take a company like BMW, even BMW Motorrad, but BMW is a big, big company. And then think of Ducati. Yeah. One, you associate with racing and one, you associate with road vehicles, don't you? Yes. And it's a kind of like the, the old Enzo Ferrari thing. I mean, he's developed and sold road cars under duress simply to fund the racing activity. And you kind of almost feel it. I mean, clearly Ducati is not like that anymore. It might have been once upon a time, but that's still the DNA, isn't it? And you, know, so you worry about firms like BMW's participation unless they're winning. I couldn't agree more. And, and sometimes you get that feeling when you're down in the garage as well and the way they do team presentations, it's all very corporate, men in suits, all that sort of thing. Ducati are all there, you know, very party party. There's people giving around plates of pizza and all the rest of it, but it's they're there to race. Again, going back to that Ducati event, there's a new Panigale, Bautista's current bike. The 2022 Panigale is essentially exactly the same bike, Casey Stoner Road to the MotoGP World Championship. I know that's 15 years ago. But if you think about it, that is incredible. You can ride Stoner's title-winning MotoGP bike now. <laughs> on the road, you can go out and buy it. And, but like you say, BMW, and another thing I'll just throw in there, remember they've got the M branding now on the bike as well, the M1000RR, yeah. not the S1000RR, but the M. They've had it on their road car since 1972. We had the 50-year anniversary this year. They cannot afford to have a BMW M in 16th place. They need to be up there. So I completely agree with you. The pressure is on. It really is. Yeah. Well, Scott Redden, if you're listening to the show, I'm, I'm not sure that he's a regular listener to Motopod. <laughs> Scott, if you're listening, best of luck for Donington. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're going to be cheering you on. I'm hoping to be there myself. And uh, come on the show for an interview. Don't give it all to Greg and MCN. We, we want a bit of this action <laughs> as well. <laughs> I, he'll get, he will get... I don't know where you're going to be, whether you'll be going around the track at Donington or in the paddock, Rich, but... Bit of both, hopefully. Okay, great. Well, if you do go trackside, because I won't have the chance to, because we'll be commentating, but I would almost put money on the fact Reading will get the biggest cheer down through Hollywood whenever he comes through. 
Yeah. If I'm wrong, I'll have to get you a beer or something. But I would reckon Reading. Reading's so popular there. I'll message you. Well, he certainly yeah. was. I mean, as you say, he was not perhaps transformational, perhaps overstating it somewhat. But he was very, very much box office for that season that he came into BSB. It was brilliant. It was so good, wasn't it? BSB got so many more fans that year. And Scott Reading did as well, because his career was on the rocks, let's be honest. He it said was. it himself. It was make or break, really, for him. Yeah, and BSB season. had lost a lot of its big stars at the time. You know, Shaky was hurt. It hasn't gone to World Superbikes. Yeah. So, yeah, it was brilliant. And it was just the injection of energy that BSB needed. And it was brilliant for BSB and for Reading. I'm just mindful of the times. So I'm going to sort of rattle off a, a few quick fiery ones here. I, I go on a bit. Sorry, Rick. <laughs> well, that's the whole point of it, Greg. The beauty of the podcast is that people can press stop and then continue the next day if they want. And yeah, that, I'm sure that's what... If I am going on, just, just interrupt me and tell me to shut up. I'll just edit you out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, Rinaldi, Gerloff, Locatelli and Lowe's. And I'm going to be a little bit unkind here, but I mean, okay. really underachieving, I think. I don't know. I, I, I appreciate you have to be a little bit more tempered in how you respond to this because you're dealing with these guys on a sort of a fortnightly basis. But yeah. Lowe's is signed, didn't he, for 23 Lowe's so, have to sign for 23, correct? Right. But the rest of those guys, I mean, bit up in the air, isn't it? Form and future, yeah. I would suggest. Yeah, it is. I mean, you're right. I do have to deal with these guys, but we've got to be fair. All I would ever want to do is be fair. We're never out to try and upset anybody. Somebody closely linked to Alex Lowe's, let's say an Alex Lowe's fan, did have a bit of a go at myself and James Tozen recently. You know, James is very outspoken in what he says, and he said oh. a few things like, Alex and Sam have crashed too much at times. I don't think you can deny that, can you? I don't no. want to see them crashing. But you've you know, got to call had... it as you see it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know exactly what it is I've said. I've, I know I refer to them often as sometimes as the B riders. No disrespect meant there. But, you know, if you look at the gaps between Ray and Lowe's, Toprak and Locatelli, and Batista and Rinaldo, they are very much the second riders, B riders, whatever you want to call them, the teammates to the top three. That's all we mean. Now, there are very different reasons, I think, for all this. I do mm. think in Lowe's case, the Kawasaki's made for Jonathan Ray, and Jonathan has a very distinctive riding style. I think Yamaha had some similar struggles as well. Toprak actually didn't run the 2022 ECU for a long time at the start of this season. I think he's on it now. Uh, but certainly the first three rounds, he didn't. And James Tozen said, funnily enough, actually, he said they've had a lot of trouble with engine braking. And I know Phil Marin and Toprak made a lot of changes going into the Sunday at Mizano after the warm-up on the engine braking. But JT said, how can you calibrate the engine braking when the rear wheel is off the ground as much as Toprak's rear wheel is? Yeah. That doesn't make things any easier. Batista's obviously just like a, it's like putting on a, like a hand in a glove or putting on an old pair of shoes, an incredible match. But let's quickly go through those guys you said. Alex Lowe's, first of all, I think it would be tremendous if Alex goes well. And I hope he goes well at Donington. It's normally one of his strongest tracks. It's his home track. He's 10 minutes down the road. It can't be easy being teammates with Jonathan Ray, can it? And I no, don't mean no. anything against Jonathan. He's a multiple world champion. It can't be easy being teammates with any multiple world champion, whether it's Schumacher, Rossi, Marquez, Ray, Fogarty, whoever it is. How can that ever be easy? Yeah. Um, and what tends to happen, obviously, is that that bike gets designed with the top rider in mind. It's normal. Was anyone ever going to beat Jonathan Ray going into that team? Let's be honest. Maybe Toprak, actually, to be fair, because he's something very, very special. But apart from that, I don't see how anyone else could have gone into that team in the current circumstances and beaten Jonathan Ray. Alex has made too many mistakes. I think that's fair enough to say. He had a crash in Aragon and lost a really good result. He's had some injuries at times as well. This year, obviously, he came into it fully fit. What's very telling is a press release that went out the other day. It really made me smile, actually, reading between the lines, because one problem I think Kawasaki has had is that that team doesn't work particularly well 
together. Mm. I'm not saying Marcel Doinker and Pereira's individual sides of the garage don't work well, but together they don't really like each other. It's not a secret. Reba and Duncan don't get on. We all know that. Everywhere. It's, it's not a secret at all. Um, and I think it's very clear to see that Yamaha worked together as a team last year better, way better than anybody else. Andrew Pitts, Phil Marin, the riders, Paul Denning, Andrea Dossoli leading the whole thing from a technical point of view, sharing data, helping each other, giving each other a toe in Super Pole. It worked wonders and Kawasaki started to do it, but it was too little too late. And I think they could have done better. And I think you would probably find even Jonathan Ray would agree with that. Um, and it was so telling. A press release went out the other day. I don't know whether you saw it. And it, it was almost too obvious, in my opinion. It was Kawasaki Racing Team, and it was titled something along the lines of two crew chiefs, one goal. And I thought, that's a bit... <laughs> it's a bit too blatant, in my opinion. Am I reading too much into this? I don't think I am. It was almost a response, I think, to some of the criticism because a few articles and things have been written of late and things said on podcasts and whatever about that. So it makes me think there is something to take from that. I think they could work better as a team. And I think that would help Jonathan Ray and it would help Alex Lowe's as well, sharing data and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'd say about Lowe's. It's it's been tricky. He's yeah, obviously getting. He needs to aim for fourth places at least. And I hate having to say that. I'd love to see him up there winning. But that's what I'd say about that. Perhaps they could work better as a team. I hope that's not being too diplomatic. No, I think that's fair. I think Locatelli's done a really solid job. It seems impossible for anyone to get on top of the top three at the moment, unless there is some sort of incident like at Assen. But he's been really consistent again, actually. I can't quite remember where he's in the championship. I don't know whether you've got it there. Fourth, yeah. It, well, there you go. So if you look at his results, he's had a lot of fourth and fifth places again. I think he had a crash in race two at Aragon, if I'm not mistaken. But apart from that, it's been really good. He had the podium at Aston, like you said, Rich. Yeah. Rinaldi's been disappointing, I think. And I think the pressure's on. There's a lot of talk about Axel Bassani on the Moto Corsa bike. He's also underperformed a bit. But I know they've changed a lot of people around in that team. And I'd like to think Bassani will be stronger. And he had a really good run at Mizano. He was up there again, like at Argentina last year, like Indonesia last year. He was up there with the top three at one point. He's good. What Rinaldi does have in his favour is that he's Aruba's baby. They are the title sponsor, the cloud, internet cloud company from Italy but that won't save his bacon forever and I've heard from some sources quite close to Ducati that he needed a good Misano, and he did have ones that's good but I think he needs more than that he can't just go there and rest on his laurels he's got to perform otherwise I think that ride will be under threat there are no excuses there really you know if you're doing a better job than Chas Davis would have done you probably would say he's not really so don't know um so that's Rinaldi Gerloff it's such a frustrating one with Gerloff. And do you know what I think comes into that? Politics. Whatever the reason, I don't know exactly what it is. There was some sort of politics at Yamaha. Les Pearson was moved across, if you remember, from the Pata team. He used to be Vandermark's crew chief. And then he was Gerloff's crew chief and doing a great job with him as well at GRT. And I know they get on really well. I think Les Pearson is a top bloke. And so is Garrett Gerloff. And I think he's a great rider. And I think he's had a lot of unfair criticism. Even I would admit, I wrote in the Motorcycle News last year after he kept crashing into things and people maybe they need to consider some sort of race ban which i would have hated to see but i just thought at the time it felt like he kept crashing and didn't understand why and mm. it was getting dangerous in my opinion i'm glad he didn't get a ban actually and i think he understands now why because also he was running older brakes last year and he's admitted that was a mistake because although he was more comfortable on them he had less stopping power than the other riders around him. And that, I think, is a reason. Not an excuse, but one of the reasons he did keep running into people. He was trying to break when they were breaking, had less stopping capabilities and kept running on and often running into somebody else. His race pace, Rich, has been really good. He struggled in qualifying. I think Estoril would have been gooder than he hurt himself in 
Saturday morning practice. I do think, though, he's feeling, not that his current crew chief is a bad crew chief or anything like that, but I do think he got on really well with Les Pearson. And I do think that's affected Gerloff. And I don't really understand why that happened. And look, just to prove, you know where Les Pearson is now? He's crew chiefing Jason O'Halloran in BSB. And that's hardly going bad, is it? Mm. So that's a shame, really. And I don't really know what it was with Yamaha in, on the World Superbike scene and Les Pearson that didn't work. Something didn't work there. And it's hurt Gerloff. And um, when the level is so high, you're never going to be in the top three at the moment. You've got Locatelli to beat, Bassani, Ronaldo. It's so easy to be down in seventh or eighth place. I think the best is to come, but a lot of that's in the mind. I just hope he's got enough time left and that they yeah. they keep him for long enough. I mean, it would, be, it would be an exaggeration to call him a sort of a pre-season favourite, but I think we certainly expected to see him in that yeah. Lowe's-Rinaldi yeah. kind of Locatelli battle, didn't we? And I, I mean, quite understandably, the, the TV footage of the races tends to focus on the guys at the very front, so the top three, because they're, they're box office to watch at pretty much every race. But, I mean, Garrett Gerloff, you'd be hard-pressed to know he was even in the championship. I know. Having, it's having a watched shame. Races, it's such a shame. It is a shame. And he got a real, real telling off, to put it mildly, from Yamaha after what happened at Assen last year with Toprak. You know, some very, very harsh things were said there. So lucky he'd got his contracts already in the bag for 2022 when that happened. Yeah, that hurt him. That hurt him badly, badly, badly. And I remember watching it. Navarra, he was stuck in the mid-pack. His lap times were good. He's often matching the leader's pace. But like Redding said, if you make a bad start and you're not high up on the grid anyway, and then the clutch isn't good and you go back, that's it. Your race is wrecked yeah. and you can't get through. And You cannot get through. And Gerloff is in that situation now. Some people have been very harsh on him. I've always, like I said before, I even thought at some point, should they give him a ban? But I've always tried to give him the benefit of the doubt. Because I think he's a really good motorcycle rider and it just hasn't quite worked so far. It's not quite clicked, has it? I'd be interested to know, so, Greg. They've got to get the right people around him. Sorry, Rich. Well, I was going to say, uh, just on that very point, really, I'd, I'd be interested to know, and maybe you do know and you can tell me and the, and the listeners, or maybe it's something you can discreetly ask about. But, you know, we yeah. hear about uh, Fabio Quattararo, for example, in MotoGP, spending quite a lot of time with mind coaches, you know, sports uh, psychologists and stuff, because... This year, he is markedly calmer, I think, Quattararo in MotoGP than we've seen him in previous seasons in terms of the old heart on the sleeve thing. Yeah. There is this lingering thing with Gerloff. He got such a slap for that uh, accident which took Toprak out in Assen last yeah. year, didn't he? It, it just appears to me that mentally he's never recovered from it. And I'd be interested to know yeah. what, if anything, he's doing to try and recapture that lost ground and then move forward mentally if, if that is part of the problem which it seems well, it's, to be it's so interesting you say that because when i was at that going back again to that Ducati event one of the guys we had there and we were interviewing was a guy called antoine mayo and anyone who watches enduro will have heard of him he's a five-time enduro world champion mm -hmm. and the video if you look on youtube search antoine french mayo m-e-o uh, and he was a motocrosser before and he's good mates with fabio quattararo and i was having a good chat with antoine at this event and he said, you know, in the difficult times, Quattararo would be trying to do something and it wouldn't work and he'd be trying again. And, and he'd sit him down and say, mate, you're going to have to try something different. You've got to be honest with yourself. And it comes back exactly to what you said there, the mind coach and having the right people around you. Mm. Jonathan Ray in 2021 and also 19 with Bautista had a very, very difficult psychological challenge to overcome. And that's when all the people around you really matter. Family, friends, many of his friends are in the team. I completely agree with you. So much of it is up there. I'm pointing. We're on a video call here for yes. anyone who's listening. I'm pointing at my head. <laughs> it's in the head. Tozen said it to me. Whitam, James Hayden, Shaky, all the guys we know on the telly. 
probably 90% of this, 95% of it is in your head and confidence. They talk about confidence. I can't sum it up. I'm not a racer. I've never been a competitor in a car or a bike. But yeah, I, I don't think Gerloff is. And a part of that is the fact he's not working with Les Pearson anymore. Mm. And maybe even more from a psychological point of view than the technical side. Giovanni Krupe, crew chief, of course, famously to Shaky Burns, mm. Scott Redding and many others over the years. He put it in such a nice way to me once. He said, uh, the rider is the patient. And the crew chief is the doctor. Yeah. And it's not just in terms of your bike setup. It's keeping them mentally stable as well. Yeah. Luca Myers, for example, can be so hard on himself and convince himself he's not going to win. And I know Randy Krumenacker, you know, you hear of people throwing up in their helmets and things like that. And that's where the people around you really matter. Mario Andretti, I, I was so fortunate to do an interview with Mario once. And he sadly lost his wife uh, two or three years ago. But he said he'd come home. Remember, Andretti's won... NASCAR titles is uh, easier to list out what he hasn't won. Correct, to exa- be honest. Yeah, exactly, exactly. F1 world title as well. But he always said, no matter what my result was, I always got the same kiss when I came home. It didn't matter. Same hug, same kiss. It didn't matter if I'd crashed at the first corner, wiped out three people, won the Grand Prix. It didn't matter. When I got home, it was exactly the same. And that needs to apply to the reaction you get when you come back into your garage as well as when you get home at the end of the weekend. Yeah. Remember as well, Gerloff has come across from America. He's from Texas. Everything's massive in Texas. There is space everywhere. He, he's living in. He was living in Catalonia for a while. He's now in Andorra, but he was living in Catalonia in the pandemic. They don't like spicy food over here. I live here myself, and I love Indian and Thai food and all that sort of thing. They don't do it here. There are the odd place, but generally they don't do spicy here. People don't like it. Just think, you know, if you, you live in, in England, you like your PG tips, you like a penguin biscuit, you like to <laughs> stick the telly on and watch the ITV or Channel 4 or whatever, and then you come away and you haven't got any of this stuff anymore. So he's had all that to adapt to as well. Different climate, different language, can't go out and express himself properly. Mm. I know what that can be like. I remember coming here when I was 12, and then you get to a point when you saw, I was sort of 17, 18, and I was more interested then in learning, learning Spanish. And I got to a point where I was understanding it, but not able to communicate properly when I spoke. And it is so frustrating. Gerloff speaks Spanish, of course, because he's from Texas and he's had a Spanish girlfriend in the past. He was going out with, I think it was Tony Elias' sister, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. <laughs> um, but here you've got Catalan. So then you're still struggling with the language barrier. And he's now up in Andorra. There's more Brits around and more other riders he can speak with, more Americans and whatever. But he's had all that to deal with as well. So just I'm not making excuses for him, but I do think there are reasons. Put all that together, plus the fact he's been separated from the crew chief he preferred working with. And I am convinced these, these are all the things, more than anything to do with his riding or the bike. It's like you said, Rich, it's the mind thing. And the thing about Gerloff, and I mean this in the absolute the most positive, nicest possible way, he is very, very American, isn't he? So, I mean, he yeah. will feel very much like a fish out of water, I'm yeah. sure, living full time yeah. here. I mean, I've, OK, over time, things will become more familiar and comfortable, I'm sure. But yeah, I'd love to yeah, talk to him and just try and understand what's going on. I think he's a really good guy. He's, he's a renowned Christian. He, he said to me... Um, like a lot of the American motocrossers are, and Freddie Spencer used to be. I mean, Freddie's always said to me, I wasn't so religious. I was more faith. I had a strong faith more than mm. a religion. Yeah. Although people say in the past he was very religious. So whatever. But Gerloff definitely is religious. He said to me, yeah, I, I truly believe God put me on this planet to ride motorbikes. And you've got to respect that. You know, Toprak is very religious as well. Um, as a Muslim, you know, he doesn't get involved yeah. with the alcohol on the podium and, and he sticks to his principles. So you think, Gerloff is, is very much a do-gooder in that sense. He believes in good and he believes in fairness and, and being kind to people and, you know, 
treat others as you wish to be treated and all that sort of thing. So when he's receiving death threats on Twitter, as he was, and he's talked about this, hasn't he, in interviews online I've noticed recently, how, how much that affects your head? And then you can't even go back and, and speak to your own family about it because you're living on the other side of the Atlantic. Tough. Just even if, Greg, your, your team's sort of giving you a proper dressing down and you feel a little bit alienated and, like you say, you lose your crew chief. I mean, yeah. treat others how you want to be treated. So, I mean, it's bound to make him feel alienated. So I'm, I'm quite convinced that, because as you say, yeah. I know, again, with the greatest of respect to Moto America, which is a championship I really enjoy watching because you've got to have, a, you know, a set to do well there. <laughs> Let's be honest. Oh, yeah, on those tracks. They're, they're very much like BSB tracks, aren't they, in many ways? Yeah, but I, I think, you know, to be fair, Motor America does not have strength and depth like, say, BSB does. So it's hard yeah. to know how much of a gauge something that does really well there. I mean, we know yeah. Gagne, Gerloff, uh, you, you know, these guys that have come across in recent years. We know they're top, top guys, but it's hard to really judge them against, say, a, a comparable British superbike or one of the perhaps lower achievers in World Superbike even. So, yeah, Gerloff, you just you know he's yet to show his best. So at least I hope he does. Because yeah. part of the reason for asking the question about the Rinaldis and the Gerloffs and the Locatellis and so on is with what's going on in the MotoGP paddock at the moment, you can sort of see a potential influx of riders from Moto2 and or MotoGP even, because there's going to be people scrabbling for seats, isn't there? Particularly with Suzuki having bowed out. It's created a bit of a ruction in the whole thing. And you can quite easily see somebody like Takanakagami coming over or even one of the better Moto2 riders who is not going to land a MotoGP spot for the next couple of seasons, which is most of them. Yeah, Remy Gardner was mentioned a lot. Yes. But yeah, I mean, there's two big things have happened there. Suzuki obviously is one of them. Yamaha losing their satellite team, Razan Rosali's lot have gone to Aprilia. So obviously that changed the whole top rack thing because I really do believe Franco Morbidelli, who had a two-year deal, would have been switched to the satellite team, yeah. allowing top rack to go in alongside Quattararo because they'd always insisted Keenan Sofogu is manager. If we're going to do it, it's going to be factory team and nothing else. Um, so that shook all that around. So then that in turn has an effect on the superbike grid. It's three o'clock. Yeah, there goes there's, the bell. There's the third time. <laughs> That had an effect on the superbike scene in uh, so much as Toprak stays now. So Locatelli won't necessarily become the team leader. Would Gerloff had had a chance of going to the Pata team, possibly, or someone else, who knows? So, yes, yeah, so he's really shaking things up. You know, I remember Alicia Spargaro was mentioned for a long time as a good contender to come across. He's obviously doing great stuff in MotoGP at the moment. But mm. yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to think, what's better? Being at the back of the MotoGP grid or being at the front of the superbike grid? And by the way, let's not just assume that any rider from the back of the MotoGP grid would be at the front of the Superbike grid. A lot of riders have had it tough, haven't they? Mm. Look at Tito Rabat. He's failed to make an impression at all. And um, and others, many others over the years have come across. Hiroshi Ayama, you might not say he had the best package, but he didn't really do anything. Um, Yanni Hernandez struggled, although he was with the Pedicini team, which wasn't particularly competitive, you have to say. Yeah. Stefan Bradle struggled. A lot of them, I think it's in the head. I don't think Bradle ever wanted to be there, and that was a big part of it. Nicky Hayden you know Hayden you know, bless I mean, Hayden was probably um, one of the better ones but again it just proves you need the bike how difficult it is yeah, yeah it's a shame yeah. because Nicky really wanted to be the first rider ever to win both MotoGP and World Superbikes and it was all cut tragically short wasn't it I as really we all know. really really wanted him to do it as well because <laughs> no, how Hayden, good but... would that have been one of the yeah. nicest people I've met in racing full stop whether cars or bikes it's so sad but yeah. but yeah I mean Going back to your question, the market has been shaken out. And I think what is interesting now as well is that with BMW there in World Superbikes, with HRC there, obviously Kawasaki, Ducati and Yamaha as well, a lot of these riders over in Moto2 
or MotoGP who aren't having such a great time, they've realised there's a good route there and it, it, they pay good money as well. I mean, a lot of those top superbike rides will pay a lot more than you'll be getting paid in Moto2 or towards the back of the grid or even the mm. midfield, actually, yeah. in MotoGP. So, yeah, like you say, there's people like Gardner and others and it puts more pressure on Rinaldi and Locatelli and Alex Lowe's as well. Alex is obviously on a deal at the moment for next year, so he's fine. Mm. But, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But Batista's re-signed. That spices things up as well. I think that throws the ball back in Jonathan Ray's court as well because there was a lot of talk of Jonathan going to Ducati again. I don't think it was going to happen. I, I really don't. Um, I think it's his management, you know, bargaining, trying to work the money to stay Inflating with Kawasaki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get as good a deal as we can there. They want more from Kawasaki. I, I'm not saying they haven't spoken to Ducati. I'm sure they probably have. Who wouldn't want to talk to Jonathan Ray? And why wouldn't Jonathan Ray and his management team want to listen? Chuck Axland is Jonathan Ray's manager, of course, yeah. based over in America. But I can't see Ray leaving. He's, he's got a Kawasaki deal for life. He'll be an ambassador in the same way Fogarty is with Ducati. Do you want to break up a winning team? Okay, there's the argument you could win on another bike. I don't think that bothers him too much, to be completely honest with you. He's got a great family life. He's a multimillionaire. He's got a wonderful house in Australia. He's got a wonderful house in Northern Ireland. They've got their new place over in Spain. Why would you, you know, yeah. Foggy right. left Ducati for Honda for more money. It lasted a year and he went back and it took him another year then to get a winning team back together again. And I remember speaking to Jonathan Ray about that once. And I said, was Ducati really ever an option? I think it was the beginning of last year we had that interview. He said, realistically, I'll admit, probably not. And now it's all happening again. I might be proven wrong here if a press release goes out saying Ray's joining Batista, but no, it's not going to happen, is it? He's staying where he is. <laughs> I had a theory, which has subsequently been proven untrue, like most of my theories do, regrettably. But I had a theory that given the progress that HRC genuinely do seem to be making yeah. with that work squad, that they might even, this is not having a knowledge of what's possible in terms of the regs, in terms of new teams coming in. But I did wonder whether HRC might want to bring a sort of like a satellite a superbike team and I thought perhaps they'd bring Nakagami and Alex Marquez over to run in World Superbike to sort of fulfil that upward developmental path that they appear to be on because they're doing quite well HRC now clearly Alex Marquez is not going to come across to World Superbike because he's just signed for the Grassini Ducati yeah. uh, team in MotoGP which was a little bit of an eye-opener but I still think Nakagami might uh, end up World Superbike bound next year but I suppose that then raises the questions where would he go? Yes it does and I would say as well Xavi Vierge is another rider who you could see going to Kawasaki at some stage in the future if Ray once you know hangs up his helmet or Alex Lowe's does other things or whatever but don't think it'll happen next year but he, he'd be a good fit there because he's Spanish he's, he's still young I think Vieja has been really good this year a lot better than I expected to be honest I was kind of expecting Lequona to go well because yeah. I thought he was hugely unfortunate to get turfed out of MotoGP but yeah, he was. Yeah, I was a little bit kind of on the fence as to whether that was going to work out. I think Lequona would have stayed in MotoGP had he not been Spanish. And it does work like that. You know, he's one of many Spaniards in that paddock. You know, he got a sixth place in MotoGP and other strong results too. Vieje, I had a funny feeling about Vieje. I've got to be honest, coming to the end, some people shot me down in flames. Oh, Vieje's never going to be anywhere near Lequona. But I just had a funny feeling he, he might do something good. And he, he got him in Nesta, really. He overtook him on the run to the line. He got past him. And he'd been injured pre-season, yeah. injured at Aragon, still injured at Assen, and now he's injured again, sadly, after an, inc an incident with Bassani at Mizano. But the points gap between the Hondas is more than it would have been. But Laquona, obviously, was the guy who got the podium at Assen after that crash with Ray and Raz Gattioglu. I think Vieja's been good. But yeah, um, you asked about a Honda satellite team. I can't see it happening yet, but who's, who's to say they won't do it in the future? I mean, I think they want to get 
consistently up there first, don't they? I think it's difficult mm. enough with one team, let alone two. Yeah. But yeah, Nakagami, why not? Yeah, Japanese rider, Japanese manufacturer, clearly a very capable rider. And it would also be nice on a side note to get World Superbikes back in Japan at some point and having a Japanese rider on the grid on a good bike, wouldn't do that any harm at all. Sugo, please. I used to love the yeah. races at Sugo. I know, I know it's, again, it's a bit sketchy, probably by modern safety standards, so it might be a bit... Sort of or if not Sugo, do you know where else it would be good to take it? I wouldn't say Motegi, because that's the MotoGP round. I think we need something different. Suzuka. Yeah. I don't have a world superbike round at Suzuka. That'd be yeah. good. Again, safety thing probably applies there as well. But... And let's be honest, if HRC do start to perform more towards the front then Suzuka might come on to the distinct possibility list because I think HRC still owns Suzuka don't they? Hon- yeah Honda owns Suzuka yeah and uh, Fuji Speedway is owned by um, Toyota isn't it? By Toyota yeah the other one yeah. yeah so Toyota owned Fuji Honda owned Suzuka how good would that be though? It would be brilliant wouldn't it? It would. Um, I'm going to have to sort of cast aside some of my questions because we're taking Go on a rapid go on a rapid fire if you want I'll try and give you one word answers Okay, you might need to think about this one a little bit, Greg, but is there a rider from another series that you would particularly like to see coming into the World Superbike paddock? Ooh, yes. Get Rossi out of retirement (laughs) (laughs) and in the World Superbike paddock. That would be nice to see, wouldn't it? It's not going to happen, obviously. It would be nice (laughs) to see Taz McKenzie doing his wild card, by the way, the British Superbike champion. Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I have to say, can can I say Rossi? Or, well, is, that not a reali- or yeah. is that not a realistic... I think, well, I think he's hung his leathers up now in, in favour of a Nomex fireproof suit, hasn't he? But, um... Yeah, so, yeah, true, of course. So do you want me to give you a current motorcycle rider? Only if you had one in your mind over the last few seasons and you thought, blimey, I wonder how he would go in World yeah. Superbike. I've always said it would be mm-hmm. nice to have... I've said the Aspargo brothers, so maybe I'll have to stick with them. I, mean, I always thought Alesh, with the way it felt like his career was tailing off until this year... I always thought he would be a good bet. He could bring something to the party, as he's now doing with Aprilia, or even Polisbargero as well. Although it would be nice to have some different nationalities, wouldn't it? I've got nothing against Spanish riders. I live in Spain, but there's a lot of them around. There is, yeah. Agata would be good from World Supersport. I'd like to see. We've never seen a Supersport champion win the Superbike title. I'm not saying he would win it, but that would be quite nice. What about someone different like a, a Nicky Tooley or someone Finnish? I'm not saying they'd be winning because I don't think he would be. Not at the moment, anyway. I mean, Ross is the one I really would have loved to see. I can't deny it. Fair enough. I mean, having talked about Gerloff at length, you know, I look at somebody like Jake Gagne over in Moto America, who's pretty much wiping the floor with everybody there, including Danilo Petrucci, although in fairness to, Ooh, to Petrucci. Petrucci's a, a good bet as well, actually. Well, yes. Sorry, He's another one contending for that Rinaldi ride. Yeah, you could see that happening because he's. I think it would be an understatement to say he's not been particularly the happiest looking person in Moto America for, for a variety <laughs> of reasons, some of which are a bit too outspoken for my English sensibilities. But, um, but Gagne, <laughs> you know, really does look like, the real deal a little bit like you know Cambobier has shown the flashes of what he can do in Moto2 yeah in Bobier 2016 Sylvain Ginterly got hurt at Imola and he came into Donington and did a really decent job on the Yamaha Superbike in their first season with Crescent uh, right. Jake Gagne didn't get a fair crack of the whip at all no because of course he was Nicky Hayden's teammate wasn't he exactly at HRC yeah and it was just terrible then. yeah that bike yeah it just, it looked brilliant with the Red Bull livery. It looked fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, it did not work out. It's a shame because they were nowhere. And even Nicky struggled to do anything with it. Yeah. And it was a horrible year because we obviously lost Nicky as well. It was just, it was horrendous. It, Jake Gagne didn't get a good set of circumstances there at all. Yeah, no, I'd like to see him get a second crack. It'll be good to see uh, an, another American as well, I agree. Talking of new people coming into the championship, 
as you just alluded to a minute ago, we've got Donington World Superbike coming up. And yeah. we've got at least one wild card that I know of. So I'm pretty sure Taz, who was going to do, who was announced as doing wild cards before the yeah. BSB season even started. But I've got a feeling I heard from the man himself that Jason O'Halloran's wild card him as well. Ah, well, if he is, I didn't know, but that would be fantastic if he is. He hinted um, at it in, in uh, Park Ferme at the Knockhill BSB uh, round that you won. There was rumours of Sykes doing it too. I don't know if that's going to happen though. Someone else, I'm sure I heard another name mention. I can't remember who it was now. Somebody else from BSB. Ray would have had one in the COVID year in 20. He would have had a wild card and that all fell through because of the round not happening. Brad Ray, that is. So that's a yeah. shame. Oh, by the way, can I throw Rory Skinner into the mix as well as another rider who'd be brilliant to see on the World Superbike grid? I should have said that before, Absolutely. but I don't think it'll happen because yeah. he wants to go the Grand Prix route and you've got to respect that. That he'd be good. He's a good talent, isn't he? Yeah. No, the wildcard thing should be good. Taz McKenzie will run it with full spec electronics as well, which is the way to do it because he wants to be in World Superbike still. And it would be nice to see him, wouldn't it, full time on the grid? Yes. It's not going to be easy, but but how great would it be? I mean, that used to be the USP, didn't it, of, of World Superbikes, getting wildcards in there and doing well. But yes, the problem so- is the national championships don't run to the same regulations anymore. And it's not just BSB, it's others as well. That's yeah. the main thing, making it more difficult now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you and I, when we had our chat in February... We're kind of lamenting the absence of wildcard riders at various rounds, but particularly places in the past, again, going back to Japan. I mean, there's some really fast riders that used to rock up at places like Sugo, weren't there? And, and basically just beat everybody to a pulp. So yeah. it would yeah. be good to and, see. And I was watching footage the other day of Neil Hodgson winning at, um, at Donington when Keeley had that moment coming out of Coppice. Mm-hmm. And Hodgson and Chris Walker went past and finished first and second. Yes. And it was the first time a British wildcard had won at home. Uh, and Shaky obviously did his double in 2003 at Brands Hatch. Yeah, and, and it did add something to the show, didn't it? And like you say, it's Hugo. Foggy and the regulars used to be down in about fifth, sixth place. And all these <laughs> unknown Japanese were at the front. Yeah, classic. Um, just very quickly, but again, I'm assuming that a good degree of the Metapod listeners will know this. But as well as your World Superbike duties for Eurosport, Greg, you also commentate on a number of the support classes in the British Superbike yeah, uh, series as well. So, any particular names or categories that have really caught the eye this year? I mean, again, top to bottom, I will say this BSB, which again, it's hard to give it the coverage and the justification that it really needs on Motorpod because it's just a thing about time. But you yeah. know, anybody that watches the BSB rounds and any, certainly any of the sport races, it's just quality up and down the whole card isn't it so i mean super sport 300 i think do they still call it super sport 300 yeah british junior super sport yeah junior super yeah. sport is brilliant i mean the honda talent cup is pretty much always sensational despite most of the kids look as if they can hardly touch the ground on those bikes. <laughs> stock thousand I, I mean they're all brilliant but is there anybody that's really kind of caught the eye this year well yeah the classes i'm doing at the moment there's four of them so there's the ducati performance tri options cup if anyone has not watched it that is very much a mix there of some young stars of the future but also a lot of gentlemen racers i'm sure they won't mind me saying uh last year was a particularly exciting one in the fact you had chris walker and john mcginnis on the grid yeah obviously john was there because the tt was called off and he just kept his eye in Uh, but i've only done one round of that so far at silverstone because not all of the support classes as anyone who watches bsb regularly will know are present at all of the rounds. So I've only done one Ducati meeting so far this year. Junior British Supersport, uh, British Junior Supersport is always a good one to watch. But again, I've only done, I think, one round so far. The two that have grabbed my attention the most are, yes, the Honda British Talent Cup, 
there's some real talents there. I mean, Carter Brown is is very talented. Johnny Garnett, of course, is particularly talented. Mm. But then you've got to look at some of the um, the smaller teams as well, like Reese Stevenson. He's a rider we need to watch out for. I'm going to hedge my bets now and say Reese Stevenson next year will be riding for the MLAV Vision Track Academy. I believe that's something that could have happened this year. Um, and I think it will happen next year. So watch out for him. But you've got some brilliant talents in there. A young Harrison Crosby and Sullivan Mounsey. And it's interesting because you've got the lighter, smaller riders who, a bit Bautista-ish, power ahead on the straights. And then people like Carter Brown and Harrison Crosby are heavier and taller. And they're having to work more on their racecraft in the corners, to put it in simple terms. And you yeah. get some brilliant racing as a result. Casey O'Gorman obviously won it last year. A man who's backed by uh, Eurosport's very own Shaky Burn and Matt Roberts as his management team. And he's gone on to do some fantastic stuff. European Talent Cup, but in particular... The Red Bull rookies, he's been right up there, several podiums already, just to prove you can do it. In the same way, Jake Dixon's proven that the level in BFB is very high with what he's doing on the world stage in Moto2. So yeah, talent cut, brilliant, brilliant races, brilliant personalities. Garnett, though, Johnny Garnett, he is so mature. He's still only 13, he'll be 14 in a few months' time. And the way he gives his interviews as well, it's not just the riding, but it's the media side. He's brilliant. Watch out for him. But we do need to keep an eye on the taller riders as well, like Crosby, like Stevenson, like Brown, because... You might argue they're honing their racecraft better at the moment because they are already taller. Garnes might, I hope he doesn't. And Sullivan Mounsey, Johnny Garnes, some of the lighter guys, Keanu Vaya, Dutch rider, really quick as well. Brother of Colin Vaya, who's a Red Bull rookie, both very quick. But they're smaller and they're going to get bigger and they're going to have to change their style. So some of these taller riders might have it a little bit, in inverted commas, easier over the next few years. Let's yeah. see. Maybe I'm wrong. And then Junior Superstock as well is the other one I do. That's been headed up at the moment by a guy called uh, Louis Vallely, who's just taken the championship lead for Max Cook, Mighty Max, who had been the guy on form, but made some uncharacteristic errors at Knockhill and actually crashed out of one of those races. So that's all been thrown up in the air ahead of Brands Hatch, the next meeting, which is the weekend after Donington World Supers. Yeah. And it, they're brilliant. Those junior superstar races are fantastic. And sometimes we're lucky enough to get two on one weekend. It's usually just one. But they are basically super sport bikes, stock bikes, even more stock, of course, the clues in the name than the world super sport or British super sport class, more road parts, basically, to keep it in simple terms, not so many racing developed parts on them. And they are fantastic races. They are powerful enough to do a lot of damage if you're not careful, but they hone their racecraft. If you look at the list of previous winners of that category who've gone up into British super bikes, I mean, it's an incredible list of people from when it started in 2008 they've been my favourite so far I'm not going to lie probably due to the fact I've commentated on more of their races than the tri-options in Junior Supersport yeah. Junior Supersport's always great too though and it's often chaotic races but really good fun but that Junior Superstock class is a really strong class and the Talent Cup as well and the fact that O'Gorman has gone on to do what he's doing is a real initiative for these guys you know with, with their families often they're just a dad and a mechanic and often the riders, the mechanic as well. But then you have got these bigger teams now, like the MLAB Vision Track Academy, the Microlist team, John Cresswell's bikes, Steve Patrickson, who's a renowned bike tuner or bike, let's say, uh, talent scout as well. I think we can call him yeah. from the one through five days Moto Star and now Talent Cup. But then you've got Reece Stevenson with his little family run team, and, it, and it's brilliant. And they're all mixing it with each other. It's fantastic, right? And I'll tell you what I love, Greg, about some of those, those series that you're talking about is that the size of the grids are absolutely enormous. I mean, it fills you with excitement and existential sort of threat and worry. Yeah. You know, because there are so many bikes on track. Yeah. They are really tasty, action packed races, pretty much without exception, aren't they? 
Yeah, and it, it's interesting because those classes, the smartest people always win. You know, it's the ones who take it on board. They do have mentors, but they're, you know, they've got a lot of good mentors in their teams anyway. Uh, but you've got Alex Baldellini, for example, who's the Dorna representative, a former world super sport rider. He's there. And it's it's interesting to see who takes on board the information and feeds it back into their riding and the way they set up the bike. It's not just about racecraft, is it? It's about learning how to give media interviews, conducting yourself online and, and in person and, and setting up the bike. And what these changes do, there are certain things that are adjustable that you can change. It's all about that too. Yeah. And listening, listening to the people around you, you can see quite clearly sometimes in the paddock who's not going to make it because a lot of them come in with a very cocky attitude. Some of them are living their parents' dream. For example, there may be a failed dad racer. That sounds mm-hmm. a bit harsh, but yeah. that's how it is. And they're trying to live their dream through their son or daughter. And you can see from a mile off, that's not going to work. You can certainly see the ones who are not going to make it. And you, nine times out of 10, can see the ones who are going to make it. You need a bit of luck along the way. Keep fit. Don't get hurt. But that's a fascinating element, actually, of watching those classes and seeing how people develop as riders. Yeah, and it's good to, as you say, Greg, to sort of, well, it must be enormously exciting and, you know, good fun to commentate on those races and first and foremost, Definitely. but also to watch the progression as the years go on as the top guys, the ones that can, and girls, because there's quite a few girls racing in these series yeah. as well, which I'm pleased yeah. to report, you know, how they sort of progress up the ranks and become the next sort of wave, you know, to with no disrespect to the Spanish or the Italians, because they sort of had these kind of systems running for a long, long time, which is why we see such a predominance of Spanish and Italian riders in the World Championship Series. So hopefully bit by bit, and, you know, again, I always say this, you know, hands up and massive respect to Michael Laverty for the sort of the monstrously huge efforts he's putting in, because that MLAV team in the Talent Cup is six riders strong, I think. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many of them. It's a hell of a setup. They've got a team at British Mini Bikes as well, yeah, and the European Talent Cup, and obviously the Moto Three World Championship with Scott Ogden and Josh Watley. Yeah, I bumped into Michael Laverty, funnily enough, at Birmingham Airport a couple of weeks ago. He just come back from Assen, and he lives in Wales and near Charles Davis and the rest of the family because, of course, they're all related. And he was flying out to Barcelona to go to the team base and then on to Jerez for the European Talent Cup. And he was joking. You say, I've just got to the point now where I feel I might be in danger of burning out if I'm not careful. <laughs> he's had to stop doing his MCN writing because he's obviously a pundit for BT Sport as well on yeah. MotoGP's coverage in the UK. The busiest man in racing, I think. I think and still be. every now and again, tempted to do the odd bit of racing himself. He's a 10-time BSB race winner. World endurance he's done. And all, well, he's done MotoGP as well. The last interview I heard with him, which was only a few weeks ago, I think he was on the official Moto. GP podcast that they put out and he was just about to jump in a van and drive something like 700 miles with other bits in the back of a van you know to go and do a test so I mean he's <laughs> just unbelievable what's good about Michael is he's he is hands-on he's a lovely guy he again though is very very much focusing on honing riders racecraft right from the beginning right from the British mini bike championship you know that early with a view to getting them up to become MotoGP world champion over the following 10-15 years however long it takes and a lot of the trouble they're having, actually, is knowing where to place some of their riders. Because with the new age limits now, 18 in the Grand Prix classes, it's caused a few headaches for these teams because yeah. some of these kids are 14, 15, 16, and think, you're right, Moto3 next year. And now all of a sudden it's 18 and they can't. Yeah. So what do you do with your riders? What do you do with them all? So that's been a bit of a headache, I know, for a lot of these teams, actually, in the last year or two. And that's once it settles down, it'll be fine. And at the moment, a few exceptions are still being made for people who are already on the entry list before the changes yeah. or if you've won a title or whatever. But there are so many talented riders out there and not enough bikes. It's always been the problem, but it feels like more so than ever now. Yeah. 
I'm pleased to report that one of our page, recent patrons is a young lad called Hudson Kai Cooper, and he runs in the mini bikes in the MLAV setup. Uh, I thought that name rang a bell. I'm sure we're going to see him work his way up to Talent Cup, you know, once age allows and stuff. I think he runs on the 90cc Avali bikes at the yeah, minute and is going up to the 110s, right. something yeah. like that. He might even be on a 110 this year, but um, yeah. yeah, so we're kind of watching, again... For such a young guy, obviously you've got very sort of supportive parents and stuff, no doubt, but very, very active on social media, you know, with the sponsors yeah. and videos of what he's doing. It's incredible what these young kids, you know, they're really sort of, they're polished, finished items by the time they're in their mid-teens, aren't they? You see, I, I mean, again, look at Johnny Garness. He's so professional in his interviews he does with Rachel Stringer, who usually does the British Talent Cup interviews, but it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I was going to go karting in, um, in Italy, when we were there for the weekend, I hadn't been karting with Charlie Hiscott for a long time and we were going to go, but we couldn't because the track was closed and it had been privately rented out by the VR46 Academy. And I said, oh, is Valentino here? And the girl at the track said, no, no, I, I'll have to close the whole place. I'll close the whole thing when Valentino's here because otherwise it's chaos. But this is what I mean. You know, there's Everywhere you go in Italy, Spain, you know, why do so many good tennis players come out of Spain? Yes, the weather's better, but there's tennis places everywhere, everywhere. And in Italy, all down that Adriatic coast, there are mini bike tracks, karting tracks. It's part, like you said, Rich, it's part of the culture. I've heard this from several people now. One thing we could improve in the UK is increase the size of the wheels from mini bike level onwards. Now, I must admit, I can't remember the numbers. But let's just say, I think BSB might be on 17-inch wheels, for example. I might get this wrong, so excuse me if I do. And it might be 15 inches at mini bikes, whatever it is. If they could get, or maybe it's 19-inch. I apologise if that's incorrect. I haven't got it in front of me. But the point I'm making is, if they could get them on the same size wheels from mini bikes onwards, by the time they get to BSB on the full-size tracks, because remember, British mini bikes is on basically karting tracks, they'd already be used to the larger wheels and the, the lean angles that generates as a result of the larger wheels and the ride height difference and all the rest of it. I'm opening a bit of a can of worms here, though, I know, because you can't really do that on mini bike tracks at the moment because the tracks are too small and there's not enough runoff. And obviously, the larger the wheels, the greater the speeds. I'm talking very basic terms here, but, you know, you'd have to increase the safety. It's an interesting point. Yeah, if they could do that, they would already be on a higher level when they get to the British Talent Cup or when they get to British Junior Supersport. Because the Italian mini bike series is brutal. And not only have you got that, you've got Moto4, you've got Pre-Moto3, you've got an incredibly competitive national junior supersport championship in Italy. And I mean, what chance do our guys have when they step up? I mean, the, at the moment, the level between the British Talent Cup and the European Talent Cup is a big, big difference. And all these things come into play, the size of the wheels and uh, they've got open exhausts are allowed, uh, different settings, suspension can be modified blah 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 and so the more alike they are it's exactly what we said before it's the reason we don't have any as many wild cars now in world superbikes the national championship regs are different back in foggy's day they were all pretty much the same and i'm not just talking about bsb talking about the spanish superbike championship the french superbike championship australia uh ama now moto america yeah that's the best way to get them on a more level playing field you've got to get all the regs the same in a national championship level whether it's superbikes Moto3, Talent Cups, whatever they are. The only problem with that, of course, is that would then involve all the governing bodies all around the world. The FIM, Dorna, obviously, they'd all have to work together. And then you've got contracts, you've got money involved, you've got power struggles. That is why that is a difficult thing to do. But from the show point of view, how good would that be? The word, the term when hell freezes over leaps into mind, doesn't it, unfortunately? (laughs) You're probably right, to be honest. (laughs) 
Yeah. Like, I think we probably, I don't know how long we've been at it, but uh, it's going to be quite a long show, which is great. Uh, hopefully we can do this again and pick up on some of the stuff that we're not going to cover today, but obviously that'll have to be much later in the year because you're heading into a very busy period of uh, back, back-to-backs and stuff now. Well, it's always a pleasure to chat, Rich. I mean, if, if you've got any quick-fire ones you want to fire at me, I'll try and give you quick answers if you want. It's totally up to you. <laughs> um, well, without wishing to put you on the spot, I, I mean, is there anybody you would particularly like to see lift the BSB crown this year? Bearing in mind, and for, as context for people that maybe don't follow BSB massively closely, we've got, say, the likes of, you've already mentioned Rory Skinner, we've got Bradley Ray. Well, I can tell you, I have got an answer. I mean, there are more in there. Obviously, you've got Lee Jackson. Kyle and Ride was the other name. I was Kyle Ride, Danny Buchan. Yeah. So I have got a, uh, an easy answer, and, um, and that's Jason O'Halloran. Yeah, I would yeah. love to see Jason win just because I think it's his turn. I think yeah. he's been very unlucky last year. I mean, the format is the format it is, and everybody knows that. And Taz McKenzie did the best job with the format we have. But I just think, and because Jason was up there the previous year as well, I yeah. think it's his turn, and I would love to see him win it. I think he truly deserves it. Let's be honest, not as young as some of the other riders in the field. And I think it's his time. And I think he's got a good chance this year. So if I had to say that, I would say Jason O'Halloran. I'd fully endorse that. Kind of part of the reason for asking it in the way that I was trying to was because you've got quite a lot of very well-established people or people, let's say, who probably aren't going to be around for too many more seasons, but such as, not not that I'm saying that Jason Halloran won't be around for quite a few seasons because I think in his case, he probably will. But he's a guy that, you know, particularly with regards to last year, but even prior to that, you just think he does deserve to lift the championship. But equally, you've got those young guns that we were talking about who may not be in BSB for all that much longer because, I mean, quite clearly they are destined for the International Series, you know, whether it be MotoGP Paddock or whether it be World Superbike Paddock or whatever. So it's a little bit hard to know who you want to win, really, in a way, because like a Brad Ray would yeah. be thoroughly deserve him, but equally O'Halloran. I'm just I was so desperately upset for him last year. And happily right. this year, he's had quite a slow start. So I'm hoping that that means his upward trajectory will be fairly consistent now, rather than he started yeah, up almost now. a bit too strong last year. And then the only way he could go was down in a way. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is you can have a, as big a lead as you like in the main part of the season, but once the showdown Counts starts, nothing. it yeah. almost totally resets everything, and doesn't yeah. it? Apart from the podium points. Obviously, Tommy bridewell i think he'd be a very very popular champion if he ever won it he would um, especially after everything he's gone through losing his brother ollie um he'd be a brilliant and a very emotional champion no doubt about that but no i think it's jason's turn i'd like to see it but that's taking nothing away from some of the others like carl ride brad ray is obviously an incredible talent uh, he lost his way a bit didn't he really he had that amazing double at donnington the yeah. japanese would never stop raving about him for suzuki and everything when he was with suzuki He's found a new era of confidence this year as well. Brad Ray, when we used to do the grid walks, when I was doing some of the ITV stuff, when ITV was still showing BSB, we'd have to, because that wasn't a live show, that was a post-produced highlights package. Mm-hmm. And on the Brad Ray grid interviews, they would have to turn the volume up in, in post-production in sound because he was so quiet like a mouse, you could hardly hear him. But now, I remember being in the OMG hospitality earlier this year at Alton Park, and he came in, and he was singing, and he was making cracking jokes with people, and his confidence has gone through the roof, and it shows, doesn't it? Yeah. And I'm sure, obviously, having Shaky backing him has been a big, big part of that, understanding the thing, things from a rider's point of view. And jumping on the Yamaha, I think. I mean, you were talking about the Ducati fit and Bautista like a glove. I mean, both Ryder and yeah. Brad Bray, they look so yeah. comfortable on that Yamaha, don't and they? And the OMG team as well. I think it's a really nice environment there. The way yeah. it's very... It's extremely professional, but also very relaxed. And I think that works well for Brad Ray. Yeah. They are, a, they like to have fun in that team, but in a professional way, if that makes sense. Yeah. With the way Alan Gardner steers the ship there and 
you've got Dave Neal doing all the social media channels and yeah. it's a nice environment to be in, uh, whether you're in the hospitality unit or in the garage itself. And I think that absolutely reflects uh, is reflected in their performance on the track as well, no doubt about it. Again, because I'm a bit of an anorak, I suppose, if I was being totally honest with myself, uh, Dave, who you just mentioned, Dave Neal, who was obviously a, a ex-host of Motopod and very friendly, yes, of course. very friendly with you, Greg, was very sort of, uh, too friendly and, sometimes. Well, <laughs> yeah, we won't go there, but uh, he was very gracious and kind on more than one occasion actually to invite me down into the into the garage. And what always strikes me, I love to sort of watch you know, the dynamic and what's going on. And on the one hand, as you say, that OMG team, you know, they're sat behind the monitors studying the data and yet somebody will stand up and they'll have a little laugh, a little joke or do a little mannerism or something. And it just looks like a really, really good fun place to work and hang out. So yeah, and Alan Gardner is is Mr. Entertainment as well. You know, Mr. Hospitality. He chartered a jet uh, to take people out to Assen uh, a couple of years back, pre-pandemic. Yeah. You know, a whole, from, from Birmingham Airport, he, he basically <laughs> chartered a jet from Jet Two, a whole plane, and took a load of guests out. So he knows how to entertain people. There is no doubt about it. Talk about landing on your feet if you're Dave Neal <laughs> in that environment. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> private jets outrageous <laughs> the way the other half live hey rich yeah not, <laughs> not from the cheap seats like where we're sat greg exactly exactly greg we must wrap this up because you've been as ever as you were last time uh, more than generous with your time and it's been absolutely fabulous to talk to you and just to sort of talk about the season to date and you know i know it's going to be a cracking well i was going to say run into the end of the season but we're not even halfway through in either bsb no. That'll come. You watch. Before we know it, we'll be halfway through, two thirds of the way through, and we'll be getting to Phillip Island for the last round. It'll come around like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope to bump into you perhaps at some stage at one of the upcoming races, be it Donington World Supers or perhaps Brands, or I'm going to try and get along to a couple of the races during the summer. Okay, good. With the BSB. So I know you're not really so much on the socials. You've mentioned you've got a, a couple of big articles coming out in Motorcycle News in the week after Donington. Yeah. I'm trying to develop a new podcast as well, because I don't know if anyone has noticed, <laughs> but hopefully people have noticed the full throttle podcast from Eurosport's not running anymore because there's been a few changes internally and they've stopped that podcast and the Bradley Wiggins cycling podcast. And I believe they're focusing more now on video content. So I'm going to try and do what I was doing before I did that show and bring in my own podcast again, but hopefully with video and do some stuff. But if I do it, I want to do it properly. And as you know, full well, that is a hell of a lot of work. So I'll see what happens with that over the next few months. I'll, I'll try and have a go. That's something on the back burner in a way. But yeah, yeah, MCM. Yeah. Well, hopefully, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. We'll see. But if I want to do it, I want to do it properly. You you know the work involved. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of dedication and time, isn't it? Mm, yes. Put it mildly. <laughs> Uh, so we'll see and I don't know whether it'll be regular weekly podcasts or more just a short series and I don't know I haven't actually completely decided if I'm really honest with you but we'll see what we do there Hmm. Uh, but yeah there's some MCN stuff coming up and I believe although at the time of telling you this I might be wrong but I believe for Eurosport we're going to be live for every single World Superbike session James Tozen and I whether it's on Discovery Plus or on the TV itself uh, on Eurosport 2 for every session so that would include free practice 3 on the Saturday and Sunday morning warm up I could be wrong there apologies if I was but I believe that will be the case when we get to Donington we'll keep an eye and of course um, for listeners that aren't familiar with it you've got a a website gregoryhaines.com regular news and bits of analysis of the season as it goes on uh, pops up on that from time to time so I'll direct people to have a look on there just use it obviously we're all freelancer you have to try and self-promote a little bit which yeah. I don't, I mean, it's not, it's kind of against my nature. I've got to say in some ways, there's people often taking pictures of themselves and getting it everywhere. But yeah, I try to use LinkedIn and like you say, yeah, gregoryhaines.com is where all my dates are and 
yeah so if anyone's listening and needs any voiceover work or <laughs> spanish translation or anything feel free to get on there and, and drop me a message but yeah i do the odd um there's a photo gallery of some of the memories from the past but yeah i do like you just said i do the odd blog post i need to do one actually because the last one i did was sat in uh lisbon airport coming back from estoril <laughs> so i need I, I am due one it's been a month or so so i should probably get one on before donnington so thanks for you mentioned you'd been to the ducati event the other weekend i mean that's again is paid work for you i suppose people would inquire and say are you available great to come along and host and do interviews and one thing and another yeah. because i mean the paycheck doesn't just automatically drop through the letterbox at the end of every month does it you do actually have to work not at all as we found out badly during covid it was a horrible time because we're all freelance and if there's no races there's no work and if there's no work there's no pay and that's very yeah. concerning believe brutal. me yeah brutal yeah um and we do have various work and it's picking up again now i'm pleased to say with the odd voiceover job in barcelona and mcn and translating for spanish companies eurosport obviously as you know but yeah the ducati thing was a funny one because that I believe is the first time ever I've had to book a flight for the same day I'm actually going to take that flight. So oh yeah, basically someone dropped out at the last moment and I got a call on the Wednesday asking me to do it to fly on the Thursday. So we interviewed Carl Fogarty on stage, Antoine Mayo. I told you before the mm-hmm. endurance um, yeah. world champion five times over and a YouTuber who you might be aware of. I must admit, I wasn't aware of him before, but I am now called Ryan F9 and he, he broadcast for fort9.ca in Canada. He's a bit of a Canadian Clarkson. He had a massive following when we were down at Ragley Hall in Warwickshire. <laughs> People were really interested to get his opinions on things, and he does road tests of bikes and things like that, and he's got one and a half million subscribers on YouTube. Really nice guy as well. Wow. Um, really, he's 30 years old, really nice guy, and it was nice to meet him and just meet fellow enthusiasts. And, and it was also nice because I... I don't normally present to a live audience. As you know, I'm commentating or do the odd bit of presenting, but not to a live audience. It's normally to a camera. Yeah. I was going to say, I hate to break this to you, Greg, but when you commentate on Eurosport, it is going out live. <laughs> just to, uh, just, yeah, it just is. to remind oh, no, you. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I mean, when you can actually see yes. the people. Sorry, I've yeah. been flipping. When we're commentating live, no, you're right. You're so right. I sometimes forget that, you know. Which is probably the reason for some of the ridiculous things we come out with at times. <laughs> Forget there's not just one man listening to you next to you. Yeah. But when you can actually see the crowd and you're presenting to an audience it's, and you have to interact with them, it's quite different. Uh, and I'm getting to like it more now. But I've always been a bit nervous about that kind of thing because it's a very different thing. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. But it was good fun to get be up there with Foggy and Ryan and, and Antoine. Uh, I rode a bike for the first time in my life as well. <laughs> a Ducati Scrambler, which is an 800cc machine. I have to admit, I didn't get it out of first gear. I wanted to get a feel for it. I was very conscious of the fact I didn't want to hurt myself or smash mm. it somebody's bike. Fair enough. Um, but I got it to the ground, the top speed of massive 20 miles an hour wow. on grass. It was good fun, actually. And I want to get back on it now. I, it's not that I never wanted to ride a bike. I just never had. But now I've done it, I want to get back on again and get a feel for it. Given that pathetic top speed, I won't bother asking if you got your elbow down. <laughs> no, only when I... Um, should I mention this? Yeah, I might as well. Well, only when I dropped it. But I didn't <laughs> drop it while go. riding. I, I dropped it when I came to stop. So I was stationary. I thought I did everything right. And I just left it in first gear and it leapt forward. And I just kind of pathetically fell off sideways. So I got my elbow down there on the grass. Well, but, um, you can console yourself with knowing that it was literally a beginner's, <laughs> a beginner's well, error. It was literally the first time I had ever. So you remember what it's like when you do your first driving lesson in the car? That's what it was. Yeah. But it, I did feel very secure in having Antoine Mayo to follow and guide me and for me to follow him that is and the first time I rode it he walked alongside me and that was a nice feeling 
But yeah, you've got to watch it. Obviously, the, the main thing is the clutch control, I was told. Don't let it out because you would go flying. So yeah, but I, I would like to have another go now. I'll never be a, a proper motorbike rider to the level. I mean, it gives you a further appreciation of what these guys are doing. It is well nigh amazing. Yeah. Well, great. Scary as well. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure as it was last time and it will be the next time, hopefully. So uh, all I can do is say thank you on behalf of myself and obviously the Motorpod listeners. And yeah, enjoy the coming up few races and rounds. Well, I say the few. I mean, you've got probably a pretty full calendar now until what, September, October time, I guess. Yeah, not even halfway through yet. I've got 20 weekends in total this year, but we're fast approaching halfway and they'll come thick and fast. But yeah, uh, thank you also to everyone for listening and to you, Rich. And uh, I know, as you said, most of the audience here is MotoGP fans. So if you got this far, well done. And I hope we didn't bore you too much with uh, with Superbike stuff. So thanks again, everyone. Okay, thanks for now, Greg. All the best. Thanks, Rich. Speak soon. Cheers.